This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Welcome to the other side of midnight. Frank Morano is out today, so you have me, Anthony Weiner, joining you until 5 a.m. So great to have you along. I don't mind telling you, I'm a little bit nervous. This is a big test for me. Letting you behind the curtain a little bit. When you're in radio, you're doing an hour or two, you're doing basically classical music. When you're doing other side of midnight, you're doing jazz, you're doing freeform. So this is a great opportunity for me. Great to have you along on this day after the 4th of July. Hope you enjoyed some fireworks, some hot dogs, some Franks, some wieners. If you want to reach out to me, I'm an at Rep Wiener, R-E-P-W-E-I-N-E-R on Twitter, wienerwabc at gmail.com, or you can always call in 800-848-9222. We have Kenneth on the board, Elias taking your calls. And me, Anthony Wiener. I have to tell you, I've gotten a lot of advice from folks around the station. They said, don't try to be Frank Morano. Those shoes are just too big to fill. But I've gotten so many different pieces of advice on how to do this program. It basically comes down to I have to pick a lane. For those of you who have not heard my program, I'm on once a week on uh, WABC Radio in New York, 2 o'clock on a show called The Middle. And I'll explain why it's called that in a second. And then Left versus Right with Curtis Lee. Well, heard of that guy? And they do a podcast called The Middle Unplugged. The episode this week, which is going to land uh, a little later this morning, looks at why RFK Jr. and Chris Christie, two kind of misfits in their party, are running for president. Anyway, I've gotten a lot of advice. So some people have said, okay, you've got to keep it very upbeat. You've got to keep it so people stay awake. That is the Curtis Sliwa school of thought. Other people have said, listen, this is a very sophisticated audience on the overnight. It's a national audience. It's an audience that used to Frank Morano's kind of erudite presentation, so you've got to kind of bring some heft. And then a few other people have said, you better explain why it's you, Anthony Weiner, on their microphone. This is your airwaves. You, the listeners, own this show and why they're letting me borrow it. So I'm going to try to figure out as I go, and I encourage you to offer me advice. We'll have plenty of time to take some calls today. I have some things planned. 
We're going to talk about the challenge of fentanyl, try to bust some of the myths around the fentanyl crisis. We're going to have a great guest in the next hour. We're going to do a little review of some of the Supreme Court decisions. And if you're looking for me to kind of be angry and yelling, this is kind of the challenge that I face when people listen to me for the first time. Some people got to know me as a member of Congress when my stock and trade was to kind of, let's see, be a little chippy, be a little feisty. I used to like going on Fox News and going on the other conservative outlets. I was known to yell and scream a little bit on the floor of Congress, famously got into a row with Peter King, who I now see from time to time here in New York. But as I have gotten older, as I've gone through some things that are well-documented, as I've entered recovery for some issues, I'm really not that guy anymore. Also, I'll tell you something very honestly, that also the political scene itself, I think, has kind of moved and shifted a little bit under my feet. So I kind of consider myself more a centrist character than perhaps some people have gotten to know me in the past. So the show's called The Middle that I do on the weekends. And the basic thesis of that show is that everyone has their ideology, and I don't expect people to check their ideology at the door. But I think there's a misunderstanding in the conventional media, and I think sometimes we have it on these airwaves as well, that people want one hand clapping. They want to be hit with so many rights or so many lefts, they don't care if there's any coming from the other side. And I believe that there is a Venn diagram in this country that the left and the right do have areas in the middle where they're not necessarily going to agree, but they're open to the idea that solutions and common sense can be found. Now, I know everyone believes their position is common sense, and I know that sometimes people call up my program and they say, oh, you say you're the middle, you're just a traditional Joe Biden suck-up liberal. Um, I don't expect people not to have ideology, but I do think that we are, to some degree in this country, the subject of a media ecosystem that relies upon us all being driven into a corner of one sort or another, and we treat a lot of the issues of our civic life as sporting events. What team are you on? And no matter what happens, if your team is at bat, you root for them, even if you think what they're doing might be wrong. So that's why I call it the middle. And left versus right, the show I do with Curtis, we very often, we find ourselves agreeing. We came up in politics kind of at the same basic time. He's a little bit older than I. I'm a little bit smarter than he. But we find, we frequently find that we agree on more stuff than, than, than not. And so I'm really looking forward to this opportunity. And to further let you behind the screen of what goes on here in the radio is that the last place that you get to kind of try out when you're a AAA radio guy is filling in for Frank because it is such a difficult show to do well because he has set such a high bar. To some degree, filling in an hour and, and yesterday morning, I filled in with Curtis on the morning show here in the New York, in the New York area. And it's a little bit of an easier thing to do, I have to be honest, than, than this program. So this is a great opportunity for me. And this holiday season, 
is a time that the regulars take off a little bit and it gives an opportunity for some of us to get some swings at the big pitches. Um, and I'm still learning the profession. I have been on the radio, I guess about a year and a half, a little more than a year and a half. I feel that I'm starting to get a rhythm, but again, this is, this is a big deal and it is really a great honor for me to be here. And I know it wouldn't be happening if it, if Frank didn't trust me a little bit, but you know, they have those disclosures that the views are expressly those of the host. That's particularly true, <laughs> particularly true tonight. 800-848-9222. I also have a confession to make, although I had an opportunity for an unobstructed view of the fireworks last night. I can see them. I can see the Macy's fireworks from the roof of my building. I didn't even do it for a couple of reasons. One, I was resting up. The other thing about this shift, for those of us who are not used to this time on the, on the day clock, as we call it in the business, I had to rest up and study up. But also, I am not a particular fan of fireworks. I think of all of our forms of entertainment. How about this for a hot take? All of our, our forms of entertainment, the one that has advanced the least – and is bringing the least new to the table as fireworks. I mean, sure, you get sometimes an explosion that makes you say, oh, that's an interesting one. But um, So I miss the fireworks. But when I emerged this, this early morning to bike into the studio, there was a moon up above. And if anyone knows what to call that moon, an orange moon that was kind of fairly low in the sky, just Beautiful. More people were staring probably more at the moon than they had been earlier in the evening at the fireworks. And there was some news, although it's a fairly slow couple of news. They, we've, they, they found cocaine at the White House, but of course they did. Isn't that where you keep your cocaine at the White House? I have a feeling we're going to find out that that was not what it was. But the Hunter Biden jokes kind of write themselves. By the way, speaking about. The middle is the theme of what I do. I have done so much Hunter Biden stuff. I'm frankly swearing off it for a while because I'm trying to show that I, I can research that and do that because I think the, the media on my side hasn't done very much coverage of, of that story and I'm trying to give it a fair. But anyway, putting that aside, they found cocaine at the White House. They found that a nuclear reactor that is in an occupied part of Ukraine is now being loaded up with explosives. Oh, that's just great. What can go wrong there? So there's a little bit of news, but basically it's been a little bit of a slow few sleepy summer days. Obviously, the circumstances in Philadelphia, the tragic circumstances, it's not that there's no news. But it's going to give us an opportunity to kind of catch up on on some things. And um, I also need some advice from you. I have an 11-year-old son, my son Jordan, and um, he's away at camp. Seven weeks, he's 11 and a half years old, seven weeks, he's at a sport guy kind of camp. And his mom and I are using the opportunity to try to clean up his room a little bit, to try to get rid of some things that maybe he's grown too old for. And he has under his bed boxes and boxes of... Lego sets. Now, I say boxes because they're not in their original boxes. They are all together in individual sealed plastic bags with the instructions, everything. So the sets are complete, but they're not, they're not boxes. They're, they're in these Lego-like storage facilities, storage things. And so we're trying to figure out either a way to donate them somewhere or a way to 
sell them easily. And then we're dealing with the ethical problem that although Jordan has not touched these, no exaggeration, in years, um, whether it's ethically permitted under the international laws of parents and kids and their toys, to go ahead and get rid of to get rid of them, to dispose of them because they're just taking up space. And I have gotten a certain amount of blowback from people in my life thinking that that's an outrageous thing to do. But if any of if you have kids, you know they just accumulate stuff. And we're trying to clear out the house a little bit. This should be our biggest problem, but it is something that I was going to turn to you for some help with. So anyway, let's. Um, as I said, if you have advice, eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Well, I also get you up on the board, 800-848-9222, Wiener, W-A-B-C at Gmail, at Rep Wiener is the, uh, is the Twitter handle. So the issue I wanted to talk to a little bit to start us off is, um, is this issue of fentanyl and the plague that it is. You know, as with all drug plagues, it becomes the straw that stirs so many problematic drinks. It becomes... The, the straw that stirs the crime, obviously, and all that goes from that homelessness, general mental illness that comes with addiction. For those of you who are unfamiliar with my story, I lost my older brother, Seth, to, to addiction. We're going to speak to someone in the next hour who, um, who also struggles with addiction. I struggle with addiction. And the problem is that the fentanyl plague has now become intertwined with the immigration problem in a way that really it shouldn't be. Um, immigration is being used as a cudgel. We can talk about that a little bit as well. We talk about immigration as this impossible thing that Democrats and Republicans are each other's neck about when, in fact, if I'm given the opportunity, and maybe I'll even do it in this hour, I can give you a solution, a bipartisan solution to the immigration challenges that could pass Congress in a heartbeat. If if they were just so so willing to if they were willing to put down the political issue. But anyway, talk about the fentanyl. You know, Richard Nixon was the one who declared the first war on drugs. And it was 52, 51, I guess almost 52 years ago. And when he did that, the number of overdoses in the United States of America that year was six thousand seven hundred seventy one. And he declared this national plague and said, we had to have a war on drugs, and ever since then, we've been in basically a nonstop war on drugs. He was the first president. The estimate for the amount of overdose deaths we had for 2021 was 107,622. Now, I say estimate because they still haven't come out with a hard number for 2022. Believe it or not, the federal government doesn't track it on a daily basis. They don't have surveillance that does that on a daily basis. So the best estimate that they really have is at 107,000 compared to 6,000 when we originally declared this war on drugs. Fentanyl is now the leading cause of death for Americans 18 to 49, more than guns, more than suicide, more than car accidents. And fentanyl, we've heard it talked about a lot. It is a synthetic um, opioid. It's 50 times more potent than heroin. You've probably heard statistics like that before. And it is much easier to make than um, than heroin because as the name synthetic implies you don't need to grow poppy and then cultivate poppy bring it in from places like Afghanistan and bring it into a lab and 
make it into an opioid. It's synthetic. It's basically chemicals. And that also makes it all in very cheap. And during the worst of the opioid crisis, um, there was this big crackdown on the makers of things like OxyContin. You remember the lawsuits and the big crackdown and suddenly we were being very careful about that. And so what happened was the real stuff gave way to kind of cheap versions of oxycodone and, and OxyContin and a pill called a blue. Again, these are things you might have heard about in passing. It was, it was in a pill called an M30 because it was a 30 millimeter, uh, 30 millimeter, 30 milligram oxycodone pill. You're listening to the other side of midnight with Anthony Weiner in for Frank Morano. And so this generic version of the oxy, of oxycodone of a, of a, of an opioid sold for about $30, one of those pills. Today, a fentanyl pill, which is the same color blue, and they basically look like fake M30s. That's what these things are called. These do, they sell for about four to five dollars. So you've got this formula where you have this enormously powerful drug that is a fraction of the price. And just to give you an idea how profitable it is to make these things. So the math works out to about 2.2 pounds of fentanyl costs about $40,000 to manufacture. You know how many pills it makes? I mean, if you had a calculator, you can probably figure it out 2.2 pounds. That's 1 million pills. And as I said, this is a drug 50 times more potent than heroin. Now, there is there are some misconceptions about it. Um, you can't you can't, you know, get high from touching it. It has to be in, it has to be in an air. It has to be in the air. Somehow you have to inhale it somehow. But that's small consolation. And it's also it's not in. People aren't giving it away on Halloween and these other crazy stories. I mean, the real story is is bad enough. And so the pharmaceutical companies now don't have these their own drugs out there. Those There have been a real crackdown on that. There have been lawsuits and everything else. But the addiction that it spawned is still out there. The people that are out there that got addicted to these opiates, they're still out there as, you know, as many as perhaps there were. And now... You have this market that has exploded confronting with this very cheap drug. And so for the last three years, fentanyl deaths have rose 94%. And now about 200 Americans are dying from it every single day. And so what do we do here on Talk Radio? We need to blame somebody, right? And when we come back, I'll try to explain who you should blame and maybe who you've been blaming, who you ought not. And... um I'll flesh that out because, frankly, there is a lot of blame to go around. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Anthony Weiner sitting in for Frank Morano. So happy that you're along. Hope to take you through to 5 a.m. Eastern Time or whatever time it is where you are. 800-848-9222. And we'll see you on the other side. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
Welcome back to the other side of midnight. Anthony Weiner with you in for Frank Morano. That's Bob Mould bringing us back in. You probably remember Bob Mould was the front man for Husker Du all those years. Um, we're talking about the fentanyl crisis, 800-848-9222. I gave a little kind of survey course at the beginning of like how it gets made and everything else, but it doesn't change the fact that we have to come up with some solution for this. And by the way, I did neglect to say this at the outset, and there's some calls that are going up on the board. You're welcome to join them. We are going to do something. You know, one of the the other piece of advice we got when I was told that we were going to fill in for Frank and I asked some people for some advice, I'm I'm always dealing with this paradox of people who want to hear me talk a little bit about my experience and what led to my scandal in my time in prison and Congress and like that stuff who want to get some things off the chest. Sometimes people are disappointed. Sometimes they think it's funny. Sometimes they just want to see what my perspective is on it now. And other people who are like, we don't want to hear about this anymore. So um, I think what we'll do is maybe a little later in the program um, when we've gotten our legs under us a little bit, we'll do ask Anthony anything. If you want to ask about any of that stuff, if you want to give me your what fors, if you want to ask me what the heck I was thinking, if you want to find out where the laptop is, if you want to know what Hillary Clinton's really like, if you want to do any of those things, uh, the answer is, like I said, I'm just borrowing this microphone. Um, we're getting to know each other. This is a great opportunity for me. Um, but if you want to ask any of those questions, I'll, I'm here for you. I think you have every right to ask those things. Some people think I talk about it too much. Some people think I don't talk about it enough. You know, just to summarize, though, before we get back to the fentanyl thing, I have the belief that I am exactly where I am supposed to be right now. That whatever path got me to this place, to this moment, to right now, I believe this is exactly what was supposed to happen. So that's, you know, that that level of acceptance is is um, it carries me every day. And it, it's something I try to teach my son. And and so um here we're talking about the fentanyl crisis. So who's to blame? Well, let's start with the fact that several administrations in Washington and several, you know, several Congresses have now been there since we've had this fentanyl crisis, which can only be called a national emergency. And we're going to talk in the next hour about the demand side. The idea that if you have an illicit drug, if you have any product, any consumer product that people are willing to pay money for, that you've got, you can't just deal with a, you know, you can never fully stamp out the supply side if you still have people demanding it. If you believe in the capitalist system, if you believe in the laws of supply and demand, that will always be the case. If anything, when you focus only on the supply side and not the demand side, all you're doing is perhaps making the product more expensive and making it more profitable for the people that survive. But putting that aside, just looking at what we have not done or done insufficiently on the supply side, I mean, you can go back to the Obama administration. Um, You know, this is, people say, oh, this is a, China problem. No, it's largely a Mexico problem. China does produce many of the chemicals that wind up making their way into these drugs. But this is a Mexican lab problem by and large. 
And um, you can go back to the Obama administration because it was under Obama that the drugs are, remember the famous drugs are, that position that was created, I believe, under Bush 1. Um, Barack Obama b- bumped it down from being a cabinet-level official. Um, he basically de-emphasized it a good deal. There was some conversation in that administration that because of this war on drugs, you have too many people of color getting getting thrown in prison for 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 long periods of time. The Im- the imbalance of the powder cocaine versus um, versus crack cocaine. There were some real problems for whatever reason. Barack Obama's administration did not really work very hard to crack down on this problem. And he removed the drugs are. And, you know, although Obama was kind of before fentanyl, then when Donald Trump came into office, um, he put a 23-year-old campaign aide in charge of, of drug interdiction and didn't even nominate a permanent head of the Office of Drug, of, uh, of Drug Policy. And when he finally did, he appointed a congressman who had wait for this, who had introduced legislation to shield drug makers when they violated federal laws. Obviously, that guy had to quickly drop out. And for years, there was no one in the Trump administration that even was in charge of this policy. Congress wasn't much better. You remember the, the Congress allocated $1.4 billion to build the wall, to part of the wall. Remember, there was the whole um, the shutdown of the government in 2018. Um, but, you know, pills don't – pills go under walls. As a matter of fact, the biggest tunnel that they found carrying fentanyl went under a wall in, uh, in California, uh, going directly into a warehouse in San Diego. But also in that shutdown of the of the the federal government in 2018, what the Democrats got was five hundred and sixty four million dollars for scanning technology to find cars cross and cars and trucks crossing the border. Now, I just want to make something clear here. This whole idea that the undocumented people that come here and then ask for asylum and cross the Rio Grande set their feet in the United States, say, I'm, I'm declaring a, a requesting asylum here. That those are the people carrying the drugs. That's not the way these drugs are. They're not getting in someone's backpack crossing the Rio Grande. In fact, it's coming with documented people. It's a much safer way to transport them for the drug cartels. Frequently, they're American. But getting back to in 2018, all this money was allocated for scanning technology so that they can put trucks would drive through kind of like an x-ray machine. The density of the drugs are obviously different than the density of the panels of the truck and the density of the wheel wells and everything else. And the goal was, as stated by Congress, to scan 72% of the vehicles. And... um it turned out that we're now, because these, this technology has not been become online yet, that between Trump and Biden, we were only scanning six percent of all the vehicles, of all six percent of all the trucks, and then like one percent of all the cars. And by the way, no administration has been particularly interested in what's going on at the Drug Enforcement Administration. They've lost about 1,300 different uh, of staffers that still haven't been been refilled, including 700 of them are agents. 
I think today, I looked it up this, this afternoon, there's still 800 vacancies. Because drug enforcement just hasn't been that much of a priority for any of the recent administrations. I mean, now some of these things are getting a little bit better. We're now seizing about 2,200 pounds a month, which is more than we seized in all of 2018, for example. So some of it's getting a little bit better. They're targeting the biggest drug cartels. For the first time since 2015, we now have an acting head. We now have a drug czar. We've, you know, it, it looks like there's signs that things are being taken more seriously. But there is, there is a fact here, and that is that 95% of all the, the, the um, fentanyl that's been produced is getting through. And it's coming through this, the southern border. Unfortunately, however, we are getting very little cooperation from the Mexicans because all we're focusing on is the interdiction stuff which and cracking down on the cartels, which creates violence in Mexico. So the Mexican government, which we need their help with dealing with illegal immigration, everyone says, well, why don't you bring back Donald Trump's remain in Mexico policy? Well, that was something the Mexicans agreed to do. And part of the way we got their agreement to do that was we basically said, nodding and winking, we'll go easy on this drug stuff because we know it's creating a lot of violence for you. And there's an enormous amount of corruption around drugs down there. Where there's money, there's going to be corruption. So when people say, you know, these people are coming across the Rio Grande and they're bringing, they're bringing fentanyl. That's not, that's not where the fentanyl is coming from. They're coming in big trucks. They're coming in cars. I mean, we basically right now, they think we're getting, we're getting one pill in 20 is getting, is getting interdicted at the border. And people have had, you know, why don't we bomb the drug labs? And why don't we take our military and attack an ally? in a border country that we we need their help like every day on dealing with all kinds of things. So you want to blame somebody? Pick pick somebody. You can pick Congress. You can pick any of the last few administrations. You can pick people in, in the media who are trying to make this into this the simple, you know, just turn it off. I heard one of the more recent entries into the presidential race, RFK Jr., say we're going to permanently and completely seal the board. Okay. If that's the, if you consider that a serious idea, but you're not going to interdict all of it. You're not, I mean, but you can do a lot, a lot better job. Now, I want to tell you something that when, when the, when, when we say, we are serious about cracking down on fentanyl and we do very little on the demand side. And as I said, we're going to get to that at the top of the hour. We have a great guest, Robert Cantor, who's going to come on, who's going to talk about this from his personal experience. He nearly lost his daughter to a heroin addiction. He himself has struggled, but also has given a lot of thought to like policies that you can do on the demand side to really make it, to make things better. But we have this, problem in our national debate right now that instead of saying you know what 
there's a lot of stuff that we can do. Let's try to figure out how we do those things. I bet you if we could, if we, you know, one of the reasons why, and it's a bit of a rhetorical device I use, I say I am fine building a wall. I'm a Democrat who says fine, only because I think in order to get some kind of compromise, that's become such a mythical thing in the minds of many Republicans that I think Democrats have to acknowledge it. And just like they did that deal in 2018, I think we should do the deal again. But if you want to stop drugs from coming into the country, it's not a wall issue. There are all kinds of crossing. We have commerce going back and forth. It's, it's our, I think our, you know, our second biggest trading partner after China. 800-848-9222. It's Anthony Weiner on the other side of midnight in for Frank Morano. This kind of nuance about the debate about like, okay, we have to do a lot of things differently is frankly what's why Congress is, it has such dysfunction on so many issues. And if you want to make it part of an immigration issue, you make it really difficult to solve. You've got to make this a law enforcement issue. You have to make this a health issue. You have to make this a consumption issue. You have to make this a treatment issue. And I said earlier that I can solve our nation's immigration problem as a legislative matter, as a policy matter, with relative ease. I wasn't kidding. It's not that hard. But on the fentanyl side, we have to scan vehicles coming in. Does that mean they won't try to get them in by boat or helicopter or something like that? Yeah, but right now, they're coming in by, by truck. Big trucks. And cars built into the panels of the cars and in tunnels that are going underneath the wall. The best place to cross, from what I've read in these stories, the best place to cross if you are a drug cartel is where there's a wall because that's less likely to have enforcement. So you, you do tunnels underneath the walls and you come up on the other side and you're off to the races. And by the way, when I say that we are not willing to really get tough on this because we don't want to alienate the Mexicans. You know, we had the former defense secretary of Mexico arrested as part of a conspiracy that he was sharing information with drug traffickers and we had them dead to rights. We had, we had text messages. We had him recorded with the the DEA, uh, the DA and the FBI did this joint joint task force on it. And we wound up letting the guy go because the Mexican president said, if you're going to start arresting my generals for being corrupt, I'm not going to have anyone left working here. And they had refused to to work with us on any immigration matter. And this was under the Trump administration on any immigration matter. And they dropped the charges. Bob Barr dropped the charges. And that's not to say that these are not complicated. Yeah, you make these these types of trade-offs. And and if you want to get the, the Mexicans cooperating on something else, that means you probably shouldn't you shouldn't hammer them too hard on drugs. I mean, they are the Mexicans are not terribly interested um, about violence and crime in the streets of New York or the streets of Nashville or the streets of Las Vegas. I'll be honest with you. They don't really care that much about that. They don't care about our emergency rooms filling up with fentanyl overdose. That's not what they care about. What they care about is the violence that goes on when the cartels are disrupted in their country. And that is a conflict that we need to recognize and acknowledge. So when you hear people say, 
well, let's just bomb the drug cartels. You know, these are these issues. And by the way, this is something you'll 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 find in a lot of issues in Washington. That it being a demagogue is easy. It's easy. Bomb the cartel. Yeah, that's an easy thing to say. And if you want to call in 800-848-922, say something like that. I'm going to probably say to you, okay. And then we can pretty much count on the Mexicans not ever approving anything like remain in Mexico again. But there's a problem. The drugs have never been more potent. And when, and when you see see what is perceived to be petty crime, shoplifting, things like that. It's because if you can get a hit of, of, of fentanyl for 4 or $5, that is 50 times more potent than what you were getting in heroin. And all you have to do is, is boost some laundry detergent and sell it on the street. You're going to get a lot of that. And maybe, yeah, maybe you arrest every shoplifter. Forget it. Maybe you put him in jail. I think the, the penalties are, I think you should have escalating penalties for all crimes. But that's probably right now a good third of all of the crime that we have is drug-related. That's what it traditionally has been, maybe even more than that. So, I mean, it, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a tough nut to crack. But, you know, there are, te- there are technologies that we can do to make this, to make this a lot better. And also... And also, we should acknowledge that these types of things, you know, you have to have enforcement of drug crime and enforcement of drug possession. We're doing all of this at a time when we're basically saying that other drugs are perfectly fine. And to this, I refer to, um, to marijuana, which in so many cities, so many states, has become basically sanctioned by government. Don't get me started on that. Although we have time. Actually, could get started on that. Maybe that's something we'll, we'll, we'll do marijuana here as, as well. I mean, not do marijuana. When I asked Kenneth for what advice would you give me, he did not say do marijuana. 800-848-9222. Anthony Weiner in for Frank Morano. If you want to reach out to me in other ways, at Rep Weiner, R-E-P-W-A-N-E-R, WeinerWEC at gmail.com. Let's get a couple of calls in. And then at the top of the hour, we're going to hear from an, an expert on this subject. Let's go to Martin. In upstate New York. Hey, Martin. How are you, Congressman? It's good to hear you. You as well. Thanks for calling. Uh, so I want to agree and disagree with something you said about fentanyl, because you mentioned it's not an immigration problem, and I agree. I, I don't think it's coming through economic refugees or whatever, uh, whoever's coming in. But I think when you said it's not a China problem, I do disagree with that, because I'm not a drug expert, but... For what I understand, you can't make drugs without the material that you need to make them. And that's coming overwhelmingly from China. And it's interesting also because China is the only thing, it seems, that you can get any bipartisan agreement in Capitol Hill right now. I mean, I mean the committee right. that uh, they have now with, I think, Gallagher, his name is, I think that's like the only non-controversial committee that's, that's ever been created in Congress in the past, whatever, 20 years. So if the material is coming from China, 
And there's no bipartisan division on China like there is with the southern border, then I think it would make more sense to focus on China because it's it's just such an easier thing to get consensus on. And like I said, you can't make it without the stuff that's coming almost exclusively yeah. from, from China. Yeah, no, Martin, you, you make an excellent point. Here's the challenge, though, is there are also the elements, the chemical elements necessary to make crystal meth also came from China. The, the, it, it, there are you know hundreds and hundreds of chemical manufacturers, and the 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 Mexican cartels are a handful. So yes, it's just kind of like where in the funnel it is just it, it's practically very difficult because the the chemical makeup of these things. Yes, some of them. And by the way, the Mexicans are figuring out how to make their own chemicals as well. This is this is a, that, exactly the kind of thing that happened with the explosion of crystal meth where these meth labs and a lot of the meth labs have now been converted to making fentanyl. You are right though about the consensus. There's consensus about the Mexican cartels as well. There's consensus about China. It's just as a functional matter of trying to figure out where in the, in the funnel you focus, finding someone that makes a a chemical that goes into making one of the chemical um, constituent parts that goes into making the um that goes into making the drug is not as 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 easy as as it sounds um you know someone fedexes some chemical from 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 um, that's probably not how it travels from china it is very hard to figure out for example which chemical lab um is making the stuff and also there are permitted uses of some of these chemicals that go into fentanyl but you're 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 not wrong. I the, here's the interesting thing about this: the the way that that drugs breaks down as an issue is a couple of things are true. One, every member of Congress to some degree has a fentanyl problem in their districts. One of the reason that this opioid issue got so much attention is it didn't just hit inner cities. If anything, it was it was hitting like suburbs and exurbs, exurbs and rural areas. You know, it got a lot of attention in New Hampshire, in the New Hampshire primaries for the Democrats and Republicans, because New Hampshire was such an explosive place for these opioids. So that's one reason why I think you can get consensus on the issue. And the other thing is, you're right, there's two kind of two kind of boogeymen here, the Chinese and the Mexican cartels. So I think you can get consensus so long as we can kind of get this untangled from the immigration question at large, which has its own tendrils. We'll talk a little bit more about it. And then, then coming up in the next hour, we're going to have someone who can, who can talk about this from firsthand experience, who's kind of devoted his life to understanding this issue and how to solve it. It's Anthony Weiner on the other side of midnight. Frank Morano is off. He's given me the great honor of being able to sit in for him. Really appreciate you giving me an opportunity as well. We have plenty of time for questions, plenty of time for guests, and I look forward to seeing you on the other side. Other side of midnight. One day when I came home at lunchtime, I heard a funny noise. Went out to the backyard to find out if it was one of those red boys. My neighbor called Peter and a flush capacitor. He told me he'd been inside the machine like the one in the film I've seen. 
Frank Morano. It's great to have you along. 800-848-9222. That was Busted, Year 3000. They actually wrote that song. The Jonas Brothers made it famous, but Busted did it originally. There's some songs that are like that, that the writer, the original recorders of the song don't get nearly as famous. So the the best example I can think of, like there's that famous song, Video Killed the Radio Star, the first song that was ever played on MTV. And um, it was written by a guy called Bruce Willie. Bruce Willie and the Camera Club first recorded it. Um, but it was, now I can remember who made it famous. The, the famous version of it. Maybe Kenneth can look that up while we're talking. But, you know, I, I always wonder, is that good or bad for the artist? Because on one hand, they get all the royalties from it, don't they, if you write the song? Anyway, we're talking about fentanyl. We're talking about, um, can you look that up, Kenneth? Who, who, who? It's a, uh, oh, it's, it's uh, hmm. video killed the radio star. I can't remember now. Now it's going to make me nuts. The, no, the Buggles, the Bugles. Thank you, Kenneth. It's the Buggles. So anyway, um, there isn't an immigration part of this. And Larry in Brooklyn, Larry, go ahead. You wanted to weigh in on this? <clears throat> yeah, uh, Anthony, uh, I disagree with you, okay, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll try to keep it keep it short. First of all, um, uh, you have to ask yourself, why did we have a solution? Why are we letting the people die, all these kids die, and nobody's doing, doing anything? If they wanted to implement the solution, they would have done it. So does it really pay to talk about a solution? And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why it why it, uh, it's not that why it's not the problem the defense at all, because. They're, they're allowing this immigration problem to fester for nefarious reasons, okay? Uh, and the reason basically is it's, it's being motivated by critical race theory, okay? And that's being signified by Cornell West, who's one of the propagators running for president. So, but but Larry, trying- Larry, Larry, before I, I'm going to let you continue, but you're saying that someone who leaves their home in Venezuela crosses five countries – to get to our border is motivated by critical race theory. That's your theory? No, no, no. They're motivated by live, obviously by life in the U.S. and and, and also the fact economy. and also the fact that their government has been collapsed. Their their petrodollars have gone gone out the window because we we the United States of America brought down their socialist uh, government and 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 they have hyperinflation of ninety five hundred hundred five percent. They can't live. They can't come. There's no medicine in, in their hospitals. They're traveling across five countries, about 2,000 miles, and you say it's because of critical race theory. Anthony, this is irrelevant what you're saying. We're letting them in. That's the issue. The issue is why, not why they're coming. The issue is why we're letting them in. We, we're not we're letting, letting them, them in. in. We're not. The comp- no, no. Let me finish. No, but I've heard this, Larry. I, Larry, I can summarize your position. They're letting all these people in because they think they're all going to vote Democrat and uh, and, and, and they're going to tip, tip tip elections. Listen, I don't believe that's what motivates someone from leaving their homeland and traveling thousands of miles. There are people from Ukraine at the border. There are people from Haiti at the border. And where do you get this idea? They're fleeing a socialist, a collapsed socialist country. Why do you think they would vote Democratic? 
I didn't say that. You're putting words in my mouth. Oh, I said I'm sorry. It's to change the it's to change the complexion of the country, who? not just to vote Democratic. What do you mean change? Who? The, but who's making that decision? Who's who's they're in, not white? They're not white people. Okay, they take to change the complexion of the country. I That's understand. All right, Larry. I I appreciate, Larry. I I appreciate. It. And please call us again. Listen. Here's the here's the problem with this conversation, is that and and we can do immigration. I really don't mind. But the problem with this conversation is if we are going to, to, to say that the law is broken, that we have an asylum law that was intended for 20 or 30 or 40 people getting off a boat um, of Jews that were fleeing the Holocaust, that we turn those boats away and we changed our laws at about that time to say, listen, if you set foot on U.S. soil, you can apply for asylum and then we have a process for you. It's not made for tens of thousands. OK, who makes the laws? rhetorical question who makes the laws congress makes the laws so change the law and there's ways to change this law and we can talk about it but this you know making everything you know any time and, and again forgive me if i sound impatient but whenever an answer starts with they or or an idea starts with they want or they are doing it i don't believe that someone who can't find food for their kids who decides to pick themselves up and cross the Rio Grande to set foot in the United States, and then once they're there, they are legal under our laws. I don't believe they're doing that for any any particular reason. And there are more people that are getting seized, that are getting stopped at the border than any time in American history. Now, it's a little bit of a deceptive statistic because more people are getting in, arguably, than any time. But, you know... There's not a they or a we or a critical race theory or tipping the balance or anything like that. The system is broken and we have a, 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 we're at an apex of country after country collapsing, leading to this problem. But I will give you, I promised you I would, I will give you, and you can almost time me, I can give you about a four-minute solution to our immigration problems that two-thirds of Democrats, two-thirds of Republicans would support tomorrow. It's Anthony Weiner in for Frank Morano. This is the other side of midnight. This is an enormous opportunity for me. I'm, I'm, I'm still a little nervous. I really appreciate the support I'm getting from Kenneth and Elias on the other side of the glass. The callers have been great. On the other side of this break, we're going to have a guest who's going to talk a little more about this fentanyl crisis. We're going to let it breathe a little bit. This is Anthony Weiner. This is the other side of midnight. We'll see you on the other side. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
And welcome back to the other side of Midnight. Anthony Weiner in for Frank Morano. We'll be here until 5 Eastern Time. If you'd like to get up on the board, 800-848-9222. We're talking about the scourge of fentanyl. There are a lot of people who are who want to expand. I'm going to do English for the rest of the show. Who want to expand this conversation to be about immigration as well? So we're going to do that a little bit as well, a little later on, and also maybe not in the next hour, but sometime we're going to do Ask Anthony Anything. There are some that have suggested. I got a few texts. Uh, where have you been? A couple of people calling me names. Your name is Wiener. You should expect some jokes. Wiener, W-A-B-C at gmail.com. Also, Anthony D. Wiener on Facebook. There is also a vibrant Other Side of Midnight Frank Morano Facebook page. I would encourage you all to go take a look at that as well. So in the setup in the last hour where I talked a little bit about why fentanyl is so inexpensive, it's because it's synthetic, why it's difficult to kind of stop at the border, but there are some ways that we can do it better. The Matrix of China and all this, they provide the raw elemental materials that get put together in these drug labs, why it's a difficult thing to stop. But there are ways we can do it a lot better. Democrat and Republican probably could agree on those ways we need to do it. There are technological ways to scan more vehicles. There are enforcement issues at DEA. They're starting to staff back up, having a lot of vacancies. Returning the drugs are to the table of decision-making in the cabinet room, things like that. But as with any what is essentially a microeconomic thing, that you have customers for a product, that the major, the major, um, the major companies, the, the OxyContin manufacturers, the major opiate manufacturers got people hooked – we did a big crackdown there, and now there's a cheaper, much cheaper, much more potent op- uh, um, option that is available. When you have that kind of a marketplace, you're going to have a lot of demand, and that demand is quite literally killing people. And so that side of the conversation, I wanted to invite in Robert Cantor. Robert is someone who knows this issue, and he'll explain how, and he and I share some common experience he had with his daughter, me with my late brother, Seth. Robert, thank you for joining us today. Good morning, Anthony. It's an honor and privilege to be here. So let's get us started a little bit by credentialing yourself on this. Um, you have some experience with this. Why don't you tell us your story, how you got involved in this, both as an activist and kind of as an expert on these issues? Sure, it's my pleasure. Um, I'm an individual in recovery from uh, what we call alcohol use disorder and substance use disorder. Uh, I have been sober many years now. I subscribe to a 12-step model pathway of recovery. There are many pathways to recovery right now, more than ever, which all of which I support. Um, and uh, approximately five years ago, my daughter almost overdosed on heroin. And she was snorting heroin, locked in an apartment with her drug-dealing boyfriend, and she wasn't coming out. And uh, in the past, my wife at the time... Uh, tried to punish the problem where we came from a place of stigma, not from a place of love and compassion. And there's something called the Portugal model of harm reduction, which I won't go into too much. Basically, 20 or so years ago, the country of Portugal had a very severe heroin epidemic. They took the bold move of removing the, or addressing the issue, um, not in their criminal justice system, but in their Ministry of Health. And um, the individual that was caught with a 10-day or less supply of drugs was not arrested. They were given a fine. 
uh, and they were worked with what's, what's called home reduction tools. I won't go into the Portugal model too much right now, but basically that country reduced its heroin epidemic by 75%. Uh, I told my wife, instead of trying to punish the problem away, we talk about gowns and gavels, not using gowns and gavels. Uh, we came from that place of love and compassion, destigmatization. De- and uh, my daughter was able to get sober. Um, and so she, this week actually, in fact, Tomorrow, technically, we'll be celebrating five years of sobriety. God bless her. Um, so when that happened, um, I was asked to tell this uh, press conference uh, when Senator Gillibrand, a few years ago, was releasing legislation called the Family Support Services for Addiction Act, which was money uh, for support services and systems navigations for individuals whose loved ones suffer from uh, what we call SUD substance use disorder. And the media picked it up. Um, and then I decided, you know what, uh, if I have this gift of sobriety and my daughter has this gift of sobriety, how am I going to be giving back? I'm not going to be sitting on my ass and doing nothing. Along comes fentanyl and I start seeing these parents one after the other, after the other, getting the call from the coroner's office. Um, the one and done, you know, the lethality of fentanyl right now is beyond something we've never seen, Anthony. And that's what happened. And it's just snowballed and it's made, I've made it my life, my life's work. It's the first time in my life I've done something that is not about money. I get great, you know, pride in it. And um, I try to be a subject matter commentary individual that uh, disseminates information like we're doing right now, uh, as well as a recovery advocate. And I can, you know, I can go into more of that. Well, uh, tell us, tell us a little bit. And I, I spent the last hour talking about the supply side and, but on the demand side, what are some of the misconceptions that people have about that? So, I mean, for example, how easy is it to become addicted uh, to opiates in general and, and particularly to fentanyl? It's extremely uh, it's extremely easy. Uh, roughly 50 percent fentanyl is 50 percent more potent than, uh, than morphine. It's a highly, highly addictive drug. It's very, very, as you know, inexpensive to buy. Because it's synthetic and because uh, and it's readily available, um, and it's extremely it's extremely addictive, and it, it not necessarily individuals that just have that addictive, for lack of a better word, personality. Uh, it's individuals that suffer from chronic back pain or from legitimate uh, pain ailments that need medications. And once they're given these medications, or once they take fentanyl, whether it's legally illegal fentanyl. Once they do that, it is extremely, extremely highly addictive. And then there's other more, uh, other drugs that are that have surfaced right now, as we talked about xylazine, which is uh, an animal tranquilizer, which is even more potent. That's what people call trank. That's what's in the news. Trank. It's called trank or the zombie drug, and that's exactly correct. And, that's, and these exactly and these drugs and these drugs they alter your brain chemistry. It's not like someone. If you're a certain, if you're a certain constitution, if you're certain weak in some way, it changes your brain chemistry to become dependent on these drugs, right? Absolutely, uh, dependent in a big way. In the case of uh, uh, xylazine or trank, it actually really puts you in a, in a trance. It puts you in a state of being in a trance. Complete, like you just said, uh, it alters the chemical. Uh, it, it creates a chemical imbalance in your body. Your body and your receptors react differently, uh, and it is just extremely extremely addictive. And Anthony, you know, you, you would say, well, why are the Mexican cartels, if so many people are dying from fentanyl, from overdose, from accidental overdoses, from fentanyl poisoning, however you want to call it, from their substance use disorders, why is it that the numbers keep going up? It's because it's so highly addictive that more and more people are getting addicted 
quicker and quicker and quicker. So for lack of better terminology, when the cartel loses one customer, another one comes along immediately. And what what resources? I mean, I think there's been a conversation around the idea that we're trying to deal with this entirely as a crime issue. You mentioned what they're trying to do in Portugal. It, it, the resources for families that are trying to deal with this, and I lost my brother to addiction, obviously, a much longer time ago to, to when there were different drugs in vogue. But the resources available to an average family are not very – I mean, we don't devote a lot to that in government. I know that you and Senator Gillibrand talked about that, but they're still not widely available, are they? Well, first of all, I will tell you that in marginalized communities, in the African-American community um, – I don't, I don't really know how to, to put it any other way to say that, that individuals in those communities are generally screwed out of the gate. You know, when you talk about one parent households, when you talk about living in that kind of environment, in that poverty and, and the allure of dealing drugs and, and using drugs and the lack of access to treatment. The, the fact of the matter is someone like I'll speak for myself has much more access to quality treatment for substance use disorder than an individual that lives in a marginalized community. That's just a fact. I'm not promoting anything here. I don't want to get political, but that's just the reality. And, you know, there's many pathways to recovery, but individuals need to know about them and they need to be able to have access to them. And that's not always. uh, And there's a tremendous imbalance in that as well in this country right now, unfortunately. Yeah. And and do you think that I mean, in your experience, I mean, we see a lot of a lot of crime that is attendant to this. Is that that's a function of just how cheap these drugs are? So even even small amounts of crime, even shoplifting and petty crime is enough to be able to buy a couple of of M30s of fentanyl, right? That's exactly correct. The M fentanyl is now, I think, uh, three, four dollars. Uh, they used to be thirty, forty dollars. And uh, that that just opens up a whole Pandora's box on who your buyer can be and how quick you can turn around. And again, as you know, fentanyl in of itself, you know, uh, and, and, and uh, it's just such a, the lethality we're talking about, you know, maybe the tip of a pencil. So you're talking about taking some granules of uh, sweet and low and pouring it on a table. And that amount, maybe the size of your thumbnail is lethal enough to kill someone. And that's exactly what's happening. That's how potent and powerful it is. And if someone uh, doesn't is not carrying Narcan to reverse that, that hypoxia or if the ambulance isn't within a few minutes away, it's a one and done scenario. And the talk a little bit about the matrix of the major um, opioid companies, what their responsibility is here. I mean, we still have, even though there's been this crackdown and these settlements and lawsuits, we still have the ravages of the addiction that these companies brought upon us, right? I mean, it's not like just because we we read in the newspaper that that Purdue Pharma agreed to pay X hundred million dollars doesn't mean that all the people that were addicted aren't still out there. Right. Well, let me just clarify something. And again, I'm I'm a media commentator and I have my opinions. I do live and breathe this, Anthony, but the the genesis of the opioid epidemic was not Purdue Pharma. It was not, uh, you know, McKesson, Cardinal Health, the drug distributors. Uh, it was not CVS, Walgreens. It was not the unscrupulous physicians. It was the Food and Drug Administration. There's a great YouTube video on a piece that 60 Minutes did about the corruption in the FDA, the lack of proper marketing, oversight, proper labeling. That was the genesis of the opioid epidemic. They are the gatekeepers, the FDA was responsible for t- for protecting the public's health. They did not do that. 
Purdue Pharma, McKesson, Cardinal Health, Amerisource Bergen, CVS, Walmart, you know, uh, the pill mills, all of that, they just jumped along uh, like good capitalists. They just jumped along, along for the ride. And, and it's very, very important to remember that. Um, so, yeah, and then and we could also, you know, and I'll touch on this too, Anthony, but we could also get into this situation and why this epidemic is not being reversed. And I, you know, be, be glad to share my opinions with you on that. Yes, please do. So we talk about, you know, and I know you've mentioned this in, in uh, your previous episode about the war on drugs and, and Richard Nixon and how it really has been a colossal failure. When you simply look at the overdose death rates uh, that we're currently experiencing, the last uh, CDC numbers uh, as a 12 month period in January of 2022, uh, 107,600 plus Americans lost their lives to drug overdose uh, fatalities, and 75 or so percent of that synthetic opioids, including fentanyl. So why are those numbers so, so horrific, and why don't they keep getting lower? Like, what are we doing wrong? Where are the missing pieces here? You know, it's not just the Biden administration that knew all those all too well about the fentanyl epidemic. This extends back certainly into the Trump administration as well. There are some missing pieces here, Anthony. There's something or some things that are going on that I don't feel that the American public knows about that's just not making sense, right? And I'll talk about uh, Osama bin Laden and what happened on 9-11 and the amount of lives lost on that that horrific day, which doesn't compare, not even in the same stratosphere as the amount of lives we're losing. Well, why is it we were able to go into another country and do what we needed to do to address the problem. Why don't we do that in Mexico? So I'll offer you this. This is just one person's opinion as a media commentator, someone in recovery, someone that lives and breathes this, which is what if I said to you that given the current political and military climate in this country, that this is not currently a solvable problem. And I would, I would offer to you that the Mexican drug cartels, there are 16 cartels in the country of Mexico, the two biggest are the Sinaloa and the Jalisco, or actually the Jalisco New Generation is the exact term that, uh, or the title that they use. And I believe that these cartels are so much more powerful and so much better armed and so much more, their reach is so worldwide that we don't know the, the extent of how powerful and how wealthy they are, that there's just information we don't have and that they, they fit into the mix. Look, it's known, if you ever listen to Ed Calderon and Lex Fridman, and he has a tremendous podcast, I'm sure you know who he is, they will tell you that the Mexican drug cartels use weaponized drones. They have military-grade remote-guided missiles. Okay, they have rocket launchers. They shoot down, you know, uh, helicopters in, in the Mexican army. So, so we're not talking, you know, they're not... The drug cartels are billion dollar, the equivalent of billion dollar multinational corporations, Anthony. We're not talking about uh, an organization that collects, you know, BB guns and pellet guns. Yeah, this is this is this is the point I made in the last hour that dealing with this entirely as an enforcement issue is going to be a fool, a fool's errand. But what are the you know, so far I haven't heard like, yes, we need to provide more treatment opportunities. You and I both subscribe to a model that requires people to take the first step to get into those programs. 
But is there something that if you if you were to sit down, I know you've been you've been part of organization. You've been one of the organizations that helped out the DEA get the word out about some of these programs. What are two or three policy things you would like to see our Congress or our executive branch do differently on dealing with the uh, the demand side that 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 your your daughter and my brother were part of? I think um, the two things that come to mind, first of all, definitely the, the, the decriminalization of low level drug use, a drug uh, arrests to individuals, I think would do a tremendous amount on. Many Why would that help? Fronts. Why would that help? Because you're coming from a place of punishment and not a place from treatment. And again, I go back to the Portugal model is just a perfect example. As I mentioned, an individual that was arrested and had less than a 10 day supply of drugs was given a fine. They were not put into jail. Right. They were required to want uh, to appear in front of what was called or is called a dissuasion committee, which is three individuals on this committee, a physician, a social worker and an attorney. And they work with that individual. They look at them and they say, you're not, you, you know, this is not a character flaw that you have. This is not a moral failing. You're not a criminal quotations, quote, quote, unquote, you are an individual that is suffering from an illness, from a disorder. And we want from a disease, we want to help you. We want to point you to, to treatment opportunities. We want to, to inform you of what your options are. We want you to be safe. And even if, even if you're not ready to get help for yourself, we still want you to be safe. Look, safe injection sites, you know, those safe injection sites, you know, have been around for a long, long time in many, many countries, and they have been proven to protect individuals. They're obviously extremely controversial. So I think decriminalization is extremely, extremely important because it not only addresses access to treatment, Anthony, but it addresses stigma. Stigma is the absence of compassion. Um, and I think that that's the mindset you want. And I think, you know, of course, unfortunately, this has been such a political football that Republicans have jumped on and Democrats have jumped on. And of course, the whole border issue, and it's a very convenient argument that you can have. I don't believe there is one individual, one government organization that is responsible for the fentanyl epidemic. I think we all need to be working together that this is a team effort and it's a very complicated scenario. Well, I, I appreciate you joining us. We, we have to go to a break. Can you stick with us for one more segment? Absolutely. All right, let's 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 go ahead to a break. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Rano, Anthony Weiner sitting in for Frank. We have Robert Cantor on the phone, who's an expert on the challenges of combating the fentanyl crisis and other drug addictions. Um, you want to get get in on the conversation, 800-848-9222, and we'll see you on The Other Side. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. There's a couple sunbathing on a fisherman lawn in England. It's a house with a view and I see it's green and blue for miles. The local figure has pretended that the church is well attended this morning. As he wanders with a purpose to the Sunday service, he smiles.
Welcome back to the other side of midnight. Anthony Weiner in for Frank Morano. That's the House Martins bringing us back in. If you want to participate in the, in the show, 800-848-9222 or at Rep Wiener, R-E-P-W-A-N-E-R on Twitter, WienerWBC at gmail.com. Anthony D. Wiener on Facebook and also the Frank Morano Facebook page is open for business. We're talking with Robert Canner about the fentanyl crisis. Um, Robert, before we, is, is it okay? You want to take a couple of calls? We have some calls up on the board that maybe you can help us with. Are you willing to do that? Absolutely. Before we do that, I want to ask you this question, though. Um, you, you talked about the idea of decriminalization, which is, which is usually a conversation about taking resources that we're doing to try to put someone in jail for a thing and put it towards treating it as a health, as a disease, which is what addiction is. The problem is what, the way many Americans are experiencing this fentanyl crisis is through the lens of other crimes. Someone shoplifting, someone, you know, mugging someone, someone, you know, doing things that are in violation of social norms. You know, it, it is, it's, it's a quite a difficult argument to make to most Americans to say, all right, let's take that guy who's shoplifting to support his drug habit and treat it as a healthcare problem. Um, it's just a difficult argument to make in a period of, mo- you know, moderate to severe increases in crime. What do you say to that conversation? Yes, I understand that. And, and it's a very valid argument, especially for uh, individuals that have been touched by this, this criminality. Um, and I would, I would encourage individuals to, to do their research and to understand the disease concept of addiction. And, and again, that comes from a place of, of compassion versus stigma. It's very, very under, uh, important to understand that an individual that is, that is using drugs is someone that is not purposely trying to destroy their lives. They suffer from an addiction. They suffer from an illness. And that is untreated. It's an illness that is untreated, just like any other illness that is untreated. And when they don't treat that, when it is untreated, then they do these unfortunate things and they suffer these consequences. So, again, it's not that it's a moral failing. And so, yes, you're talking about coming from a place of stigma that this country has sat in for decades. And I think if we change the narrative on that, if we understand what is addiction, people will have much more compassion to say, oh, okay, I understand. I get it. This is where the source of the problem is. And and, and hopefully that will change the minds and the perceptions of, of, of more people in this country. Let's go to a couple of calls here that have been waiting patiently. Lauren in Manhattan. Lauren, welcome to the other side of midnight. Yeah, good to hear you. I'm glad to hear you. And uh, Robert Cantor, you as well. Um, I just, my, I mean, I go back using drugs, oh God, I don't know, 65 years, and I uh, never stole anything, never mugged anybody, never robbed anybody. Back in the day, we used to drink Robitussin AC and take Quaaludes in Milltown. Then we had Nembutol, we had two and all. I mean, then along came Valium. I mean, we love our drugs. American, I don't, I can't speak for other countries. I'm, I'm American. We love our drugs. If you take away one drug, we're going to get another drug. We've been doing this heroin back when, in, in 66. My friends were dying of heroin constantly, but we were doing it anyway. Robert? So, I mean, I, I, I just, you know, and then alcohol. I mean, if you take away. No, you, you, you make drugs. a good point, Lauren. R- Robert, talk back to Lauren. Is this a problem that is endemic in our society and will never truly be stamped out? 
Well, that's a that's a very good question. That that really is a very question. I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball, but uh, you know that's all well and good. And listen, I I probably did the same drugs that that caller just reeled off. I mean, I did all of those different things as well. <clears throat> the lethality of fentanyl never existed in anything. So when I used, for example, cocaine, we knew that it wasn't pure. I knew it wasn't pure cocaine. It was laced or cut with other chemicals and other substances, usually let's say baking soda. That's not going to kill me. That's not gonna put me in the hospital. So we're, this is a whole different ball game where, where, you know, it really depends on how you want to approach the solution and how much of that solution involves treatment and funding for treatment and access to treatment. You know, when you're talking about the fentanyl epidemic, yes, there will always be an appetite but then that goes back to the question, with, which is how much of an appetite will there be if that supply was not available, right? So now it's not only the lethality of fentanyl, Anthony, and your caller. It is also the fact that there is an enormous amount. It's synthetic. So there is no shortage of supply. So when you're constantly putting out more and more potent drugs, addictive drugs, illicit uh, substances into the marketplace, and and, and the, you know, it's, it's a situation that I don't think is ever going to fully improve. I think the appetite will be there. I guess the best way I can answer that, Anthony, is that there are so many different moving parts to this situation. Um, the appetite will always be there, and I think a lot can be done, and I think the, the premise of that is through treatment, if you want yeah. to curb that appetite. No, I, th I so. think, uh, look, I mean... There's an expression in our program that these are these are not bad people trying to be good. These are sick people trying to get well. And just like you'll probably always have epilepsy, you've got to develop treatments for them and make sure people get those treatments and can stay on it. Let's go to one more call. Let's go to Michelle in Northeast Pennsylvania. Welcome to the other side of midnight, Michelle. Hi, Anthony. Um, hello to your guest. Um, I've been listening. I have a daughter, too, that is a heroin addict. Um, I've lived through overdoses. My issue, and I've listened to everything you've said, but my issue is, just like the last caller said, it's always going to be there, okay? But there is no deterrent on the street. I went down to Kensington. Kensington. I don't know if you've ever been there in person to get my daughter into a rehab. And it was while COVID was starting. The National Guard was on the street so that you couldn't, you know, move around as freely because of COVID. And meanwhile, a block away, they were giving out heroin laced with fentanyl for free. And, you know, I'm looking at it from a, a perspective. Who, who, who is doing this? The drug yeah, dealers are giving it out for free, for mm. free. They're sitting outside. They give you the first few bags free, so you're going to come back for free, for free. I was there for free. The National Guard's a block away. But my thing is, if someone's on a bridge and they're going to kill themselves, the police come, they save them. They try and rescue them from killing themselves because of mental issues, whatever it might be. We're allowing, I mean, I don't know if you've been to Kensington. If there are, I have been there to Kensington. People, there are thousands, young women, men, I mean, living on the street in filth. It's, it's like zombie land. I live there with my son. Like, I'm really trying not to cry. But, like, I looked at him and said, they should just napalm all of Kensington. 
Like it, it, it it's it's beyond your imagination. Yeah, I, 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 I think we get it. But we're on drugs and everything, but but nothing's being done at the local. No police, no nothing. You're just they're just allowing it. Well, Michelle, Michelle, let, let me let me let let me Robert respond. But before he does, I can tell you, I mean, if New York is an example, we have all of our EMS guys are now carrying Narcam. I would say probably two thirds of the calls that the NYPD is getting are to the type of crime that can be traced back to uh, to drugs. And the and the number of calls we're getting from people who were zonked out on the, on the sidewalks. If to be honest with you, it's only law enforcement. Robert, maybe you have a different experience with this. It seems like our problem is we only have law enforcement that's dealing with this. None of the, the on the healthcare side, it's not nearly as robust. Well, yeah, and uh, uh, I'm sorry to hear about your daughter. I know that scenario all too well. Uh, I have been to Kensington. It is uh, a war zone. It's a very frightening. Uh, it's a frightening thing to see in this country. Um, that is a specific law enforcement issue that you're discussing. I believe law enforcement does go in. They do clean those areas up. And in a very short amount of time, they go right back to being, um, you know, these horrific neighborhoods where, as we were talking about before, Anthony, you know, the, you know, medications like uh, drugs, rather, excuse me, like Trank, uh, xylazine are, are infiltrating those areas, which is really just doing a number on these neighborhoods. You see, this is what I mean about it being a very complicated scenario with a lot of different moving parts. Well, we only deal and, we only deal with complicated issues here. But let me ask you a, a serious question. Tell us the story, and we're going to get James in Pennsylvania up next. But tell us the story about how you finally had some f- good fortune with your um, with your daughter. We 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 had. On and off with my late brother, Seth, we had moments where it looks like he was turning around and then it would go in the other direction. What what was the thing that eventually got got your daughter sober? Well, what got her sober and uh, well, she got herself sober. But what happened was, as I mentioned, she was locked in an apartment with her drug dealing boyfriend. She wasn't coming out. My wife and I at the time came from that place of, st- of stigma, of trying to punish the problem away. Uh, we convinced my daughter's friend to convince her to meet us at a diner, uh, to discuss with her the elements uh, of the Portugal model of home reduction, meaning that she was part of the family. We do love, we did love her. We do love her. We do have her back with limitations, obviously with boundaries. My daughter came out of that apartment. She met us at a diner. We spoke, she was very high on heroin when we had that conversation. We had to, you know, we talked to her about the fact that we understand your suffering. We understand, we want to meet you where you are. We want to give you the resources to get help. This has to be your decision. We're not going to let you come into the, you know, in the living room and, and uh, snort heroin, watch Netflix, but we do love you when we do have your back. We wanted to work with you. And she left and my wife and I stayed at that diner and we cried and we didn't know what was going to happen. And an hour later, my daughter showed up with all her belongings. She literally extracted herself out of that apartment from her drug dealing boyfriend, she said, okay, take me to detox. And we took her to a four day detox and she detoxed from, from the heroin and other substances that she was, uh, that she was using. She went to a 20 day inpatient program. She then went to a sober living home for six months. And she currently, as I said, uh, tomorrow will be celebrating five years of sobriety. I in no way or my ex-wife take responsibility for her sobriety. 
and for her successes in her pathway to recovery. But she will tell you that it was that loving, destigmatized conversation that we had at that diner that said, "Okay, let me give this a shot. Well, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, perhaps the most difficult and traumatic part of being a family member of an addict is trying to figure out what posture to take about it you know yeah, do you try well, that's exactly i correct. mean do you, do you try to you you, you want to protect your child you want to you know you want to show love but you you don't want to you know you don't want to support their habit it's a very complicated it's a very complicated thing and not everything works um late in sets life uh we did an intervention we had a fancy interventionist that came in we all went around the room i'm getting a little bit emotional just just remembering it and it looked like we had made a breakthrough, and it just didn't. It just didn't stick. Let's do one more call to someone else who has a story. James in Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today. Hello. How are you? Thank you. I, I live in Washington County, Pennsylvania. And at one point, it had the highest heroin death in the nation. And my friend just died not long ago from it. And I live in a little town here. The population is about four thousand people, and it's overdosed quite often. I have a Bearcat scanner. I listen on a police scanner, and it's bad. But I, I'm a reformed alcoholic. My last drink was March 20th of 1994, and you have to run it. It's a daily reprieve. People that drink are dishonest, but I, I give it to this point. The boy that cried wolf. You know that fable. You can only ask, you can only um do things wrong so many times until you people don't help want to help you. You know what I mean? You gotta want to help. Am I right or wrong? Robert, you want to take this one? Uh, you know, I, I apologize, but I had a little trouble understanding his question. I mean, I think uh, James James made the, the the foundational point about about many people in recovery that that ultimately it's the person has to take their own first step. That that's the one step you can't you can't force someone to get help. They have to make kind of a a, a, a decision to turn their life around a little bit. Your daughter made that decision. Seth from my brother made it from time to time. Um, and, and, and you made it and found sobriety. It, 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 I mean, that's, that's definitely a fact of this, of, of, of getting cured for this disease, isn't it, Robert? Yeah, I'm not making any excuses. Your caller is absolutely correct. I'm not making any excuses for an individual's responsibility to be culpable for their, for their lives and to, to seek out the help that they need. At the end of the day, that individual has to make that decision for themselves And if they don't make that decision, they're going to suffer consequences. So we're not I'm not trying to give anyone a free ride here. I'm not trying to say, well, you know, have compassion because it's an illness and just let them, you know, go ahead and commit these crimes and let them, uh, you know, and throw them in treatment facilities and we'll pay for it. No, not at all. Please don't get that impression at all. I'm just trying for people to understand that there's a lot more to it than the the stigma that people live in. But absolutely, your your caller is 100 percent correct at the end of the day. An individual must be willing to get the help that they need, and no one else can do that for them, 100%. Well, Robert, we really do appreciate you joining us today. Tell us a little bit. Is there a website? Is there an organization? Where can people get more information about you and what you're doing and where they can get resources to help if they have someone in their life who's been afflicted by this? Sure. Um, the best way to really keep, uh, and I was just going to point your callers to one thing that, you know, you talked about legislation and what's happened in Congress. If you go to congress.gov, Anthony, you will see, and you punch in fentanyl, you will see there are just a tremendous amount of bills on both sides of the aisle that have been introduced or that have become law. And it's very, very important, I think, for your 
listeners to really do their research on the fentanyl epidemic and to do their research on all these different areas that we're talking about, not just law enforcement, but treatment and legislation to understand, as we always we keep using those words, the moving parts. My Twitter handle is media underscore Cantor, and I'm constantly posting, usually on a daily basis, the latest information on what's happening in the fentanyl epidemic. So if they go to Twitter and they go to media underscore Cantor, K-A-N-T-E-R, They'll find that there. Please follow me. They can also go to my playlist, my YouTube playlist, my YouTube channel playlist, which has all of my uh, appearances, radio and television that I have done on this subject. Um, and um, and I have an IMDb page. But those would be the best places to connect with me. Well, Robert Cantor, we really do appreciate you've done a great service. Um, congratulations on your sobriety and uh, that of, of your daughter. Uh, you've done service by being here and talking to our audience here on the other side of midnight. Keep up the great work. And on the other side of the break, we'll take a couple more calls about immigration. And then the next hour, we're going to talk about the Supreme Court and uh, their decisions on affirmative action and debt relief. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Anthony Weiner in for Frank Morano. The Other Side of Midnight. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's The Other Side at Midnight with Frank Morano. Midnight Anthony Weiner sitting in for Frank Morano. I'll be here until 5 a.m. Eastern Time, 800-848-9222. I want to thank Robert Cantor for joining us to talk about the fentanyl crisis. That was Fat Boy Slim bringing us back in. I don't know if you understand or recognize what Kenneth just did there. He played the House Martins, and then he played Norman Cook, who used to be in the House Martins. Well done. 
Uh, so let's get a couple of calls in here until the top of the hour. You know, I talked briefly about immigration, and I could, I we can do it. I mean, if you if you want to do it the old fashioned way, you're just saying Joe Biden wants to kill our country, or we can talk about how the law is 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 a, how the laws are broken right now. But let's get Doug and Edison to start us off. Go ahead, Doug. All right. First off, uh, with regard to the immigration uh, crisis and how we got here legislatively, uh, the, the best synopsis short work on the subject that I've read is The Culture of Critique by Dr. Kevin McDonald. Uh, and it talks about the 1965 Immigration Act, which really opened the floodgates uh, to the third world, as opposed to what used to be traditionally European immigration. So your previous caller that you were very dismissive of, and admittedly, he wasn't the most articulate fellow, but he was on to something. I mean, the Kennedy administration, uh, there was a gentleman by the name of Emanuel Seller. Uh, he was, was a congressman. It was my predecessor. Brooklyn. It was my, my predecessor. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Emmanuel Seller, and he, he almost led a single-handed uh, legislative crusade in the Congress. Yeah, but the problem, the problem, though, Doug, is that three times since then, we have reformed the legal and uh, the illegal immigration system. So the, 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 going back to the 1960s is fine. In the 1980s, we, we did all family reunification of places like Ireland and England, all these, these families that had been divided up. We focused on that. The difference is that every so often – it, it, we have to update these laws, and they haven't been substantively updated since the 1980s. And the world has changed, and the challenges have changed. Okay, and am I still on? You are. Okay, uh, so that being said, uh, you know, there is something to be said uh, for, for maintaining immigration levels and wanting immigration to be uh, oriented towards populations that are most readily assimilable to the people who are already here. What For about example, what about economic need? Well, economic need is a, is a factor, but overarching, you know, there should be some there should be some recognition that immigration reflects who's assimilable, who's most compatible with the existing culture and the existing population inside the United States. I don't know. Now, that sounds like it sounds like it sounds like code. That sounds like code for something, Doug. Why don't you say what you mean? All right. So let me give you an example and maybe I could better flesh out what I mean. So basically, when you look at a country like Japan, they don't have what you call use solely or birthright citizenship. They have use sanguinis. And again, there's nothing wrong with wanting uh, Japanese to have a citizenship based on ancestry because they want to make sure that they continue a certain culture. They want to make sure that they continue a certain heritage. Right, but, we, but, sure we're, but, but Doug, we don't have those types of laws, one, because of the Constitution, but two, because we, unlike Japan, did not all come from one place. That's the whole thing. We're doing something different in the American experiment than any other country on Earth. So to say we should borrow from there – there, time immemorial, and thank you for calling us, Doug, call us again. Time immemorial, people have been saying things like, well, who can assimilate? They, they said, you know, why aren't they speaking our language? My great-grandfather, Wolf Wiener, the first Wiener that was here in the late 1890s, our, one of the family pictures of him is him standing in front of his fur shop. He was a furrier, standing in his fur shop in the Lower East Side. All of the lettering on his shop were Hebrew. Okay, just like now there, there, there was a lot of Russian in, 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 the, in the same in that same area. He didn't do very well in that business until he figured out I can't just have Hebrew lettering in, on, on my on my store. I have to have English. Or I'm not going to survive. Every every new wave of immigrants comes in with certain obstacles. 
And so to say, well, who's assimilable? We haven't found a population that isn't assimilable, I'm trouble saying that word, assimilable yet. I mean, the fact of the matter is that, that when, 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 when populations come here, they wind up assimilating. The challenge that we face, and I thought this is where that call was going to go, the challenge that we face is that we have strong economic imperatives for employers to hire people who are undocumented. For them to come here on temporary, um, on temporary visas to come here and work. And then because it's so difficult to get back in, they stay here. Okay. And that's why we have about 13 to 15, no, no, 13 to 15 million people who are undocumented in this country. That problem is one that none of my Republican friends have been able to acknowledge. Well, that's not true. The, the fringe of the party hasn't been able to acknowledge it. And many of them are here working paying taxes, following the law, and adding to the economy. He says, wait a minute, how can they be working and paying taxes? They've got fake Social Security numbers. And you know who knows they have fake Social Security numbers? The Social Security Administration. We collect billions of dollars every year in Social Security um, deposits that never go back to the people because because they're using fake Social Security. But they're they're paying sales taxes, they're paying property taxes, they're paying taxes. And we can't solve any of these problems until we solve or to at least it has to be part of it is how we saw now people say, oh, well, we know you want amnesty. Don't want amnesty. Here's what I propose. What I propose is if you come out of the shadows, if you're one of these people, if you can show you haven't violated the law, you can show you've been paying taxes, you show you've learned the language, you show you're contributing to society, you show you got your kids in school, we will give you a temporary worker ID that can't be forged. You are going to pay a fine. You're going to be punished. It's not amnesty. You're going to pay a fine and then you're going to get at the end of the line for citizenship some point down the road, but you're going to be lawful. You're not going to be legal because we're not going to round up 13 million people. That's just not going to happen. And then we're going to say to employers, if you employ anyone who doesn't either have a, a, a who doesn't have one of these unforgeable electronic, uh, um, uh, um, electronically made ID cards, then we're going to punish you like a criminal for hiring an undocumented person. That's how we're going to deal with those 13 million. Then at the border, what we're going to do is we're going to say we're going to invest a lot more in securing our border. But what we're going to do is since we know that we have to fix these amnesty laws, that right now we have tens of thousands of people coming when it wasn't created for that. We are going to have hearing officers, not judges, hearing officers in trailers if need be, down at the border processing people in days or weeks rather than years for their asylum applications because as many as 50 to 70 percent of these applications are rejected, but it's years later. And then we're going to we're going to create we're going to create true temporary workers for things like agriculture and dairy in New York State that people can come and go. They just want to earn money and then go back to their home country. Many of them don't want to stay right now. Our immigration laws are keeping people in, not out. Now, what I just described to you, increased enforcement on the border, more rapid processing of amnesty claims. Letting the, the, the undocumented come out of the, out of the shadows. And for their kids who never lived in another country, the so-called dreamers, they're contributing to, they're going to be able to stay. What I just described is supported by like two-thirds of the Congress. Remember the whole gang of eight that they, that they had, four senators, four congressmen, different parties, everything else? People agreed. And then what happened? 
Then the the right wing of the Republican Party started yelling amnesty, 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 and now Marco Rubio, who's supposed to be the bright young thing, now now he can he can never run for higher office again because they said he supported amnesty, which wasn't true, but and that was supported under Bush, who was supported under Obama. Two thirds of Congress agree with that paradigm, with like that's the way you can solve this problem. Sure, you do enforcement. Sure, you start to have hearings right at the border, but you have to figure out those. That are undocumented as well, that are that are here, that are part of our economy, that you – anyone within the sound of my voice probably has some experience whether they know it or not with people who are undocumented working all the time and contributing to society. This isn't some big political conspiracy that's stopping this from happening. This is our inability to get out from the extremes. And there's extremes on the left too that say, you know – we we want to, we want higher levels of immigration. We don't even want them to pay a fine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That if they commit a crime, it's no big deal. Whatever it is, there are extremes there too. But it's by and large a problem with the with the the right wing of the Republican Party. This used to be every legal immigration reform that we did for the last seventy five years, including under Ronald Reagan, has been done in a bipartisan fashion because you know. A lot of businesses need these workers as well. It's good for our economy. I mean, that's the that's the four minute version or less than four minute version. We have undocumented people that are here, and and this asylum system that everyone is furious about now it is did not start yesterday. It started in like the nineteen forties. It was a reaction to the USS St. Louis coming with refugees fleeing, uh, Jews fleeing the war that were turned around because we didn't have a way to deal with them. I mean, that was 50 or 60 or 70 people. We didn't expect there to be tens of thousands because of mass migration from all over the place. You have people from Ukraine showing up at our southern border. Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela. A lot of these countries that we undermine, by the way, as we should have. We should we, we we were right to try to take out Maduro, but unfortunately, now we we created hyperinflation there, and we said they can't sell their oil, and all these people can't eat, so they're they're coming here. Got to talk like talk about this as like adults. When we come back from the break, we're going to take some more calls. You know, I said we were going to do something called Ask Anthony Anything. A lot of people are taking me up on that. Because there are some calls on the board for that, 800-848-9222. Anthony Weiner sitting in for Frank Morano. I want to tell you what a great honor this is for me. As I said at the top, being asked to sit in in this program is kind of the the toughest fill-in that you can do. This is the toughest time to fill. It's a it, This is like doing jazz, not classical. You've got a – he has an, an audience that got used to a very erudite conversation – Frank is one of the best, and it's really an honor to be here sitting in for him. And it's great to have all of the callers participate. It was great to have Robert Canton this hour. In the next hour, we'll um, lighten it up a little bit. And I hope to see you on the other side. It's Anthony Weiner sitting in for Frank Morano on the other side of midnight, and we'll see you on the other side of the break.
This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. of Midnight. I'm Anthony Weiner in for Frank Morano. We've had a great start to the show. Talked a little bit about the fentanyl crisis, some about immigration. I promised we were going to have Ask, An- An- <laughs> Ask Anthony. You'd think I would know how to say my own name, Ask Anthony Anything. We just had the 4th of July when we had the Nathan's hot dog eating contest, not the wiener eating contest, not the Frank eating contest. By the way, did you guys hear about this? You know, they used to be the, I say used to be because they're changing it. The Oscar Mayer Wiener Mobile. It was the Wiener Mobile. If you go online and look it up, it was basically this big wiener on wheels. And then Frank Morano started, I think it was, I think it was due to this, this powerful show that he has. He persuaded the company, is it Hormel? Who makes it? Oh, um, wish it was an Oscar Mayer. What is the, what's the company that makes it? Anyway, he to, to change it to the Frank Mobile, and now they're changing it starting this year. It's not going to be the Wiener Mobile anymore. I have so, there's so few good things about being named Wiener, and at least we have that. I mentioned this on the, what was filling in the mornings the other day. When I ran for student senate at Plattsburgh State University, which is all up on the Canadian border, as far up, far north in New York as you can get and still be in the United States of America, I ran for student senate in my senior year. And my slogan was, vote for Wiener, he'll be frank. And I also used, what did I say, vote for Wiener, he's on a roll. Vote for Wiener, he'll relish your vote. This is the way I made use of my name. But this time of year, when there is cookouts and picnics, a lot of people talking about Frankfurters, Franks, and Wieners. So I hope you had a great 4th of July. I hope you had an opportunity to partake in some of the commemorations of the holiday. This is when we declared our independence from Great Britain. Went on to have a rough go of it in the Revolutionary War, but we, you know, particularly here in my hometown in New York, Washington got his butt kicked pretty good in the Battle of Brooklyn. Um, but fortunately, some weather changed, and we had, we had some good fortune, and here we are today. We have a special relationship with our friends across the pond. Let's go to some calls. Some folks have been waiting for quite some time. Want to get them out there. Uh, Robin in New Jersey. Go ahead, Robin. Thank you for calling. Are you with us, Robin? We lost Robin. She'd been waiting for a while, or he had been waiting for a while. Let's go to Rocco in Saratoga. Hey, Rocco. Hello, Anthony. Thanks for getting to me. I appreciate it. Hey, welcome, and you're doing great. Absolutely great. Enjoyed you for the first time doing Curtis earlier. 
Curtis took over the show, you know, but you, you were a good sidekick. You were a good sidekick, Anthony. You played your role well. Oh, you, sure. you have a knack for this. You, you're yourself. Be yourself. Talk to us like you're having a conversation at a diner, all right? And you're doing great. Absolutely fantastic. I do have a wiener question, okay, Go if ahead. you don't mind. I, hey, I could send you, I have a Hot Wheels car that the Wiener Mobile that I got from the Wiener. They gave it to me. You spun the wheel, you asked a question, and you won a prize. And guess what? It was a Wiener Mobile. They gave me a foam one and then a Hot Wheels. You know, they're changing it, Rocco. They're changing it. To the Frank Mobile. Uh, Frank Mobile? Nah, I like the Wiener Mobile. I'm with you, pal. I am with yeah, you. Let's, let's, yeah, come on. Frank Mobile? Nah. Frank, Frank for the Mobile? Let's stick with the Wiener Mobile. I know. Again, we're so. Co- corporations today, and thank you so much, Rocco. Appreciate the kind words. Corporations today, they're either taking big risks like Bud Light did, or they're trying to be super safe, like apparently, I don't know. You know, give me, give me, give me, give me a little something over here. Um, next, let's go to Michael in New Jersey. Go ahead, Michael. Do we lose Michael as well? We lost Michael. Um, next, let's go to uh, Robert in Suffolk. Go ahead, Robert. Hi, Anthony. Hi, Robert. Can we talk a little bit and maybe uh, we can agree on some things? We usually don't. Uh, Robert, you always bring you always bring a lot to the table. So let's make an effort today. Go ahead. Why don't you start us off? Okay, I lost maybe my best friend, childhood friend of forty five years to fentanyl. That was in meth, and that was it was laced with. He moved out to Seattle years ago, ran a successful business. He ended up losing everything. Well, like a lot of people who do drugs. He started doing meth to feel better about himself, despite his situation, being homeless, losing everything he had. And he OD'd because it was the meth was laced with fentanyl. I'm sorry. Robert, say his name. Paul. Paul. Go ahead. Continue. Okay. So I'm like, man, what can I do about this? Because it really touched me, and I think like a lot of other people, they've been touched by this problem. So I came up with an idea. Anthony, do you remember what happened with quaaludes, methoquaalone, in the 80s? Well, they, they disappeared, right? They, they, they were banned, right? Yes, and the reason was because methoquaalone was made a Schedule One drug, illegal like heroin. Well, that can't be the answer for fentanyl because fentanyl, fentanyl has legitimate uses. As a matter of fact, I was surprised to find out I just had a um, a cataract surgery done in my left eye, and the anesthesiologist comes in, explains what's going to happen, and he says what I'm going to be getting, and he told me I was going to be getting some fentanyl. And I stopped him, and he says, I get that reaction every time I say that word. Fentanyl has a, a, a an actual pharma, pharma, pharmacological use. Schedule 1, there's no use for it. By the way, you know what else is a Schedule 1 drug? Marijuana, believe it or not. So you can't do that. You still have to make it available for the for the uses to which it is um, it is intended to be used, and, and it is intended to be used 
as a uh, an anesthetic. 800-848-9222 are going around the horn. We're doing some Ask Anthony. We're doing some wrap-up of the fentanyl conversation before. And let's continue that a little bit here as we go to Ray in the Bronx. Go ahead, Ray. Fentanyl, fentanyl has legitimate uses. As a matter of Ray, fact, t- I was Ray, turn off your radio. Turn off your radio and talk to us. Um, Ray, are you there, pal? The, All right. Sorry. Ray, Ray, call us back, and we'll get you back up on the board. Let's go to Paul in Connecticut. Go ahead, Paul. Hello, Anthony. My name is Paul. I'm from Connecticut. I've struggled with uh, opiate addiction for, say, 15 years, and I, you know, I go to pain management. I try to take the amount that's prescribed. The only thing I've been able to do sometimes is take less by smoking medical marijuana. I'm getting to a point where I'm thinking about giving it up again and maybe try to go to rehab or something. Last time I tried it, I stayed in my room for a month and just sweated it out. Yeah, I mean, it is. Look, I I can't give you advice, except, I mean, I was fortunate enough to be able to, to, to go to rehab for my addiction. If you have the resources, that's the other problem. So many insurance companies... Um, don't don't pay for for rehab and um you know there are twelve step programs it's it's a difficult it's a difficult beast to get off your back these things are are manufactured and designed to change your brain chemistry to create a physical need um this is not this is not and this is by the way the way a lot of people wind up getting getting hooked is using it for a completely legitimate purpose, not as a recreational matter at all. You know, people took opiates because they were encouraged to get them by the pharmaceutical companies, that doctors were pushing them as a a relatively, they were originally pitched, believe it or not, as a non-addictive, as a non-addictive painkiller. And that turned out to be far from the truth. And all these lawsuits that have been settled with the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma and all these other companies, the internal documents, they, they, they not only knew what they were doing, they did everything possible to get more and more people hooked in all around the country. And it's the kind of thing that affects a lot of people. And, 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 and fortunately, a lot of the resources from these lawsuits are now being put towards, um, put towards treatment options, and hopefully they'll be available um, for people like Paul. Uh, next, let's go to Mickey and Flushing. Go ahead, Mickey. Oh, hi, Anthony. Nice meeting you. Uh, in defense of, of three things, I want to touch on briefly. I'm defending Jordan ferociously. Please, do, uh, uh, have you have you and his mother visited him in at the camp? I think seven weeks is too long for him. <laughs> Now you tell me, Mickey. Could... Now you tell me. Actually, you get you you your visiting day once at about the four week mark, and we get two phone calls with him. You think that's too that yeah, that's that's uh, that's too much time away from his family? I think I think so. Yeah, find out how is you know. I'm always afraid that of anybody abusing a younger one because that happens when you have different when you have that group of of children or anybody. So he's he, he's still a baby. He is. He's eleven and a half years old, though, Mickey. He's got to start to he's let go of the apron strings a little bit. I have no concerns about the camp. Kids go away to camp all the time. He's eleven and a half years old. He's having a great experience there. 
I have to tell you that I had no experience with camp growing up, but you know, I, I, I was in a middle class household. My mom was a school teacher. My dad, who I just lost, was like a neighborhood lawyer. They, they bought a kind of a little summer shack on a lake in a place called Highland Lakes, New Jersey, in northern New Jersey, in Sussex County, New Jersey, which I think is also right on the New York border. Um, and so every summer, school would get out. We'd get into the back of the Pontiac Safari. We'd get our dog Rufus, Jason, Seth, and I, and my mom and dad. We would go out to Highland Lake. So I never had any experience because that was kind of like camp for me. I never had any experience with camp. I want to tell you this, though. He came back last year after being away for four weeks, and he had grown up a lot. He was cursing like a sailor. He had a lot of confidence that he didn't have when he went away. I think camp is a good idea, It's but, Mickey's, you're not wrong. I mean, seven weeks is a long time. But what else do you have to say? What are the other two items you had? Oh, the second, two more things. Not uh, unknown, uh, it's a, I'm sure everybody knows, it's a program for the family. Correct. Of addicts. And that's a very good. Um, yes. It's Al- Al-Anon is for, is for family members of alcoholics, but it's also available for, uh, for family members of, of other yeah. addictions. And not, a, not unknown. That's the, the ones right. I know, the one I used to attend. I had a family member that was a heroin addict. Every, you know, Mickey, everyone does. Everyone does. This is not, you know, yes. addiction doesn't pass anyone by. And did you have one more thing you wanted to add? Yeah. The other thing is, that, you know, a lot of people are abusing the asylum. Uh, I'm against illegal immigration. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, I shouldn't apologize. No, you shouldn't apologize. I love this, con- I love this country. And uh, there's a process. People have to apply to the, to the consulate. That doesn't mean they want to, uh, to, give, to give them a visa. No, but Mickey, let me, let's not enter legally. Yeah, that is not the law. The law is, thank you, Mickey, for calling. Call us again. The law today says, and this has been the law since the 19, I want to say the 1940s, is if you are on American soil, you can apply for asylum. However you got there, if you are on American soil, that's why, um, that's why when people cross over at the Rio Grande, they line up. You've seen those 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 videos on, on television. They're lining up, and when they get off the buses, wherever they come from, they're holding a piece of paper because they are presenting themselves to an official of the United States government, in this case, Border Security, uh, uh, um, uh, CPS, and they're saying, I'm applying for, for asylum. Once they say those words, they are then legal. Whenever you set foot in on U.S. soil, you're legal. Now, some people said, well, you can't cross to another country. Technically, you can't. That, that is not U.S. law. Now, Biden is trying to make that the policy. He is getting sued for it, and I think he's not going to win that suit. There's only so much that Biden can do, and we're going to talk about this in the next, in, in, after the break, some of the Supreme Court decisions that have come down. There's only so much that the president can do unilaterally. But the asylum process has been in place for the longest time. But here's the difference, and this is a very important thing. I said this when I was doing the, the, the explanation a little earlier. This was not a system that was made for hundreds of thousands of people. It was a system made for literally handfully. We thought when it was, when it was becoming the law, we were thinking about boats. <laughs> we were thinking about a, a boat full of people coming in and how we were going to deal with them. Um, and that's why, by the way, the only exception to that 
rule is the so-called wet, uh, 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 wet foot, dry foot, is that if you're coming from Cuba and you're out in the water coming from Cuba, you can declare asylum from Cuba. If you're Haiti, you can't. you got to be on land. But in Cuba, you can get asylum. That's a special uh, part of the asylum law for um, for people immigrating from Cuba because of the way we always had Cuba as a big bugaboo. We want to encourage people uh, to leave Cuba and come here. By the way, there are a lot of Cubans at our southern border also right now. I mean, the, asylum, the asylum is just one part of the system that's broken. Now, I'll tell you what is what is true. The tone of Joe Biden during the campaign of like of basically we're open for he didn't open the border like this Joe Biden opened the border. No, but the word gets out. I mean, people be, you know, just like it's slowed down a lot recently because there have been these new things that um, an app that you have to apply on that they want you to show that you applied in another country and all these other things. Now, these might not stand uh, withstand. Um, legal challenge, just like Title 42. Title 42 is part of, you know, everyone said, oh, there's no no COVID emergency. Why do we have to wear masks? Well, once there was no COVID emergency, you couldn't have Title 42 anymore. That's the part of the health law. It wasn't part of the immigration law. And so in Title 42, when when Biden said the the COVID emergency is over, Title 42 is going to fall soon thereafter. Title 42 is not an immigration law. It was a health law for a, a national health emergency. But right now, when these people are, are, are coming across, once they set foot in our country, they then become legal. They're then legally applying for, um, for asylum. And, and they're getting a date to come back that can sometimes be four years later, five years later. Because it's a very inefficient process. And I'll tell you, how about this for another crazy thing? And then we got to get to a break. If you show up for your asylum hearing and you're denied, which a lot of them are, sometimes in, in some jurisdictions it's as many as 75% are denied because you have to show, you have to show a lot of things. I mean, you have to really, be, you have to, to declare asylum, you have to show your harm is going to come to you or you're being religiously persecuted where you came from. So the judge says, all right, I'm ruling against your asylum application. Then what happens? Nothing. Because very often judges don't uh, do the next thing, which is an order of removal. So then you have these people, and there are a lot of them, that are in this limbo area. That they have been denied asylum, but there's been no order of removal to have them to, to have them um, removed from the country. So we're going to talk a little bit about the Supreme Court decisions after the break. This is Anthony Weiner in for Frank Rano, the other side of Midnight. I'm so grateful that you're along with us, and we'll see you on the other side. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Pretty frightening, but you know the chances are so small. Stuck by beasting, nothing but a bee thing. Better chance you're gonna buy it at the mall. But it's a 23 or 4 to 1 that you can fall in love by the end of this song. So get up, get up, tell the bookie, put a bet I'm not a damn thing will go wrong. The odds are that we will probably be 
Welcome back to the other side of midnight. Frank Morano has the night off, the morning off, and Anthony Weiner, me, that Anthony Weiner. Still getting a few texts and calls. What are you doing on in this shift? This is the big test. When you're doing radio and you get to do Frank Morano's show with Frank Morano's audience that expects his kind of erudite, sophisticated, interesting kind of programming. To some degree, I'll be honest with you, to some degree, by the way, 800-848-9222, we have a couple of lines open. To some degree, doing the kind of kind of split-screen TV on the radio, just doing the Democratic talking point or Republican talking point and whatever, is relatively easy. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, and I happen to think it's boring. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be honest, you know, like the same stuff. Uh, and some people have said to me, well, why did you find yourself on conservative radio? I'm on WABC in New York on 77 WABC talk radio. And um, it's because I don't want to be MSNBC is just as bad. Just as bad. It's what's wrong with the country right now is that we just want to have reinforced, reinforced, reinforced what we already came in believing. We want to kind of cheer for our team. I don't think that's particularly interesting. I don't feel like I grow very much when when I'm watching. I, and it's, it's just as bad. I it, It's a tough toy. If I, if I was stuck on a desert island where I could only watch one, I don't, I, I don't even know which I'd listen to. I mean, even though I probably agree with the commentary on the left-leaning station more than the right, it's just boring to me. And so on this program, it's it's much more of a conversation. Maybe it's the time of day. Maybe it's the fact that it's that this Frank encourages interesting thoughts. Maybe it's just that I don't know. Maybe it's because it's a nationally syndicated show. It gets a little bit more. And and it's and and don't get me wrong. I don't think there's anything wrong with someone coming into the conversation with a bias. We all have them with a, a point of view. But if the idea is I only want to hear other people with that point of view, and I get it. I there are some some texts and some people that have commented on on Frank's on Frank's page on Facebook. Ah, oh, he's a he's a bum. Or I'll never, you know, he's whatever. Well, I had a guy call in yesterday. Yeah, it was the morning before. Oh, it was when I was on with uh, with Dominic here in New York in the morning. And he, he there's me and Dominic. He says, and Dominic and that non-entity that you're on with, I won't even. And I'm like, what? What do you mean a non? You disagree with me? That's not. That's not obviate my basic humanity. And so here on this show, things things are. Conversational. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the final two Supreme Court decisions that came down at the end of the term. And they came down at the end because they were the most dramatic and the most, you know, and to some degree they were both anticipated because of the way oral arguments went, because of the fact that there's a six to three kind of supermajority in the court for the conservative wing. But, you know, the Supreme Court now is at record ebb in terms of its popularity in the country. And the Supreme Court has done unpopular things. I, to be honest with you, the Supreme Court, if you think about it, the judicial branch is where the minority has its rights protected. The majority controls the presidency and the legislative branch, but it is the minority that needs their protections. Even if there is one person who has a constitutional right 
It's just the, the court is where you go to get that. And so the, the court doing unpopular things is not in and of itself problematic. But there is this sense that the Supreme Court today is sitting down with an outcome in mind that they want to get and crafting their decision in order to get there. And the two decisions that came down at the very end were examples of that, in my opinion. One was on the Biden plan to um, to waive a portion of people's student debt, and the other was a suit brought by Asian Americans against Harvard University, North Carolina, the University of North Carolina, that um, that said you can't use arguing that you should not be allowed to use race as a consideration in admissions. And in both cases, the decisions were kind of a mess. Let's take the second one first, the, the affirmative action case. Now, just want to make sure everyone understands the argument. The question was not, was not, can you use race as the only thing? Because no one was doing that. It's, can you use it as one of the things that you consider? And the Supreme Court, despite what you may believe, gave three answers to that question. They said, no, you may not use race. That was the headline that a lot of people read. They said, well, maybe you can, because they said in their decision that if you mention in your application that you are a person of color, then the school can consider it. And that just means that literally everyone is going to include it in their application. So what effect is this really having? And then they actually said, yes, you can use race if you are one of our uniformed academies. And when they explained that, they said it's because it's important that we ensure diversity in our officer corps. Uh, does that mean it's not important to have diversity in our police department? Does that mean it's not important to have diversity in our college professors, does it say it's not important to have diversity then, therefore, in our college students? They didn't explain. It was just 200 some odd pages of this decision. They didn't explain, well, wait a minute. If you agree that it works and it has a, an advantageous outcome for society at West Point, why not Harvard? So the decision was like they were trying to shoehorn in their 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 preconceived idea here. And let's remember who brought the lawsuit. The lawsuit was brought by Asian Americans because they argued they were being discriminated against because, uh, because blacks were given a leg up. Well, in the briefs for the case, Harvard reported in, in, in their materials and the lawsuit was between 1980 and 2014. During that time in the United States of America, the population of our country, of Asians, went up threefold. Do you know what happened at Harvard during that period? It went from 3.4% to 22.5%, a sevenfold increase. The class of 2025 is 30% Asian. The people that had been harmed in this suit, that brought the suit, didn't show any harm. 
And my pers- my view is the conservative position here on this case is let these colleges do what they think makes their college the best. We always hear this from conservatives, but out of business. Let business do business. Don't regulate so much smaller government. Well, the court is stepping in and saying, we want to tell you how to get a great, diverse, interesting student body. And then to make it worse, they're saying, we won't let you do it the way West Point did it. Affirmative action is pretty unpopular in the country. You know, the polls are all over the map. It's pretty unpopular in the country. It's like supported by, it's hard to tell. It's basically a 50-50 proposition, but more people, I think, oppose affirmative action than support it. My view is, you know, if these colleges think that they make their colleges better by considering someone's race, then you should let them do it particularly when the group that claims to be harmed is not harmed at all. So the other thing is the, that's in a similar category, is the student loan forgiveness, um, which was struck down. And this one is, this one is to me, a question of our, of, of what our values are, right? And my generation, and I was born in 1964, the tail end of the baby boomer generation, College was relatively inexpensive. Um, Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, he went to Cal State Bakersville in 1989. I graduated in 1985. Tuition at the time was $800. If you adjust that for inflation, it would be $7,500 today, a 400% increase. And why did that happen? Because we slashed funding for universities during that time. States did all across the country. And what's another example? Um, I had one written down. Here it is. Chuck Grassley. I just picked Republicans who have been complaining about this. He went to the University of Northern Iowa in 1955. Tuition was $159. Adjusted for inflation, it's $8,300, a 500% increase. And it's caused, like I said, we slash funding for education, and then we say to people, oh, you know, you got to fend for yourself. You got to take out these loans. They did a study at the University of Kansas, 1987 to 2016. And they found in 1987, a college student at the University of Kansas could pay her tuition with a part-time minimum wage job and have still have money left over for books in 1987. In 2016 at the same school, if you worked a full-time minimum wage job, you would still be $38,000 short. And so what we're saying is we, we say to young people, we say to Americans that one of the ways you can get, a, get ahead is you can go to college. And if you're a middle-class person, you have to take out a loan and you're saddled with all this debt when you get out. And this is a middle-class program. It's not just Democrats. I don't know where that, you know, this is middle-class families. You know, everyone knows a family that, that has some of, some of this student debt. And what we're saying is our generation, we took the money out, and now we're putting the money back in. And people have said, you know, people have said, um, oh, it's not fair. 
because I paid my bills. They should pay their bills. It's not fair. It's like this special group. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, pull up close to the radio. Every program we have in government is for a special group. But at least this is middle-aged, middle, middle-aged, middle-class people that went to, to, to helping with their college bills, not the special group being lobbyists that lobbied for a, for a drug company or a defense manufacturer that had an $800 toilet seat or an agriculture subsidy or all of these members of Congress. purpose of having these notes if I can't find them. All of these members of Congress who got PPP loans that were wiped out. Matt Gates, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Greg Pence, Vern Buchanan, Kevin Hearn, Roger Williams. Roger Williams of Texas, $1.4 million in PPP loan, wiped out. Brett Guthrie of Kentucky, $4.3 million PPP loan, forgiven. And this is a program that, like some middle-class schlub, like, you know, had came out out of college with $50,000 in debt when I came out with like $2,000 in debt because we had a lot more support for universities. But that's not the most outrageous thing, and that's not the thing that has me most pissed off about this decision. Nobody had standing to sue, and the Supreme Court acknowledged it. So what is standing? Standing is when you show that you have three things, okay? That they have a concrete injury. Second is a direct connection between the injury and what government did and that there's a potential form of relief that can do it. No one, they, this was sued by like the, the Texas, the Texas Secretary of State or something, like the University of Arkansas, the Arkansas Secretary of State. The United States taxpayer holds this debt. And by the way, saying that I'm a taxpayer, that doesn't give you standing because then you can be, you can, you can always sue for everything. Nobody had standing. And, and when, when the, the plaintiffs were asked why they had standing, they had no answer. And when the Supreme Court handed down the decision, they still hadn't answered it. It may seem like a technical issue, but it's not. And then the one final thing is the, the reason that the Supreme Court gave for striking this down. And this is Anthony Weiner on the other side of Midnight in for Frank Morano. 800-848-9222 if you'd like to join the conversation. The reason that the Supreme Court gave for striking down the student debt thing is they said, well, the president can't do this on his own. He needs Congress to do it. Congress gave him the authorization, something called the HEROES Act. And I'm going to read from it. Authorizes the president of the United States via the education secretary to, quote, waive or modify any statutory or regulatory provision affected by the so-called national emergency. Congress authorized this. This is what Donald Trump used. So these these textualists in the Supreme Court saying, oh, well, it was too big. We don't think Congress meant it. I mean, this is the problem. This is why people, that's why this Congress, this, um, this Supreme Court is held in such low regard. But I see a few people want to talk back to me on this stuff, and I, I get it. I mean, the problem is if, if the Supreme, the Supreme Court comes in with this thing that they wanted to do, these political contracts that they want to do. But there are elements of, of jurisprudence, and I'm not a lawyer, 
So I'm just using fancy words. But there's elements of jurisprudence. One, these guys claim to say, do what the text says. Congress writes the text. They still ignore it. They say, well, we don't think they meant it. Two, there's something called the Chevron Doctrine, which says that federal agencies, Department of Education, who interpret their own authority, we leave them alone. We let them make that interpretation. The courts don't step in and do it. And this is the Department of Education interpreting the statute. And third, we keep hearing these conservative justices and their friends say, use judicial restraint that defer to the legislature and the executive branch. Uh Uh-uh, we don't like this one, so we're not going to. And left or right, I mean, you cannot be happy when the Supreme Court of the United States is only have the confidence of 18% of the American people. That's a problem. And it's reinforced by the idea that now we have broad swaths of our political elite saying don't trust the FBI, don't trust the Justice Department, don't trust the police department. Seems to be the one thing left and right agree upon. Don't trust anyone who has a badge. The left says it about police officers. The right says it about FBI officers, about IRS. About the you know everyone seems to be saying it about the courts. Joan in Manhattan, what do you think? Oh, hi. Yes, no, I am not calling to uh, take you on and quibble with you. First of all, I'm, I'm really glad that you're sitting in. They, cho- they made a good choice, I think, with you to sit in uh, for Frank. Um, you, what do they say? What did Hamlet say? You're doing a yeoman's job. Let's Thank you. I, pr- I appreciate it, Joan. <laughs> yes, uh, but I did want to say, and also you educated me on the issue of spending. I was wondering that myself. Who has standing to bring the case on the uh, loan forgiveness? And apparently nobody. And in that case, they're not supposed to take the case. And they took it anyway. So that's pretty weird. Um, But on the um, affirmative action, um, the best thing I ever read on affirmative action, I mean, you may have read it. It was 1993 when Colin Powell was appointed the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff by Clinton. You remember that? And he wrote a not-bad piece in the Times called Why I Support Affirmative Action. And he explained how affirmative action is supposed to work. And he gave the example from his life. You know, he, he joined the Army in the 1960s and um, was a private, uh, wanted to make a career out of the Army. And one day his commanding officer said to his second-in-command, uh, bring me a list of people who are worthy of promotion. I want to promote somebody Bring me a list of 10 names of people in our troop, that I, one of whom I can promote. So his second in command brought him a list, and the commanding officer looked over the list, and he said, I don't see any black people on this list. I want you to go back and bring me another list, please, and make sure there's at least one African-American. There has to be at least one African-American in our troop who's worthy of promotion. And that's how Colin Powell's name got on the list. Now, that is affirmative action at its best. People don't understand what what affirmative action is supposed to be. It is not about promoting unworthy people because of their ethnic identity or the color of their skin. It's about making sure you don't not promote someone who is worthy because of the color of their skin. That's what affirmative action is. Right, and there is, and I appreciate, Joan, thank you for the kind words and thank you for that historical reference. I mean, there is an element in affirmative action of compensating. And and Martin Luther King talked about this um, 
in in explaining like he he pointed to this and there was a a quote from an interview in 1965 where he said quote within common law we have ample precedents for special compensatory programs and you remember that America adopted a policy of special treatment for her millions of veterans after the war including my late father went to law school on the GI bill the idea of saying that look we have we have put a special burden on this community, and obviously that happened for African-Americans for hundreds of years, that we're going to try to do a little something. But there's this other element that I think that perhaps our conservative friends can appreciate, the idea of trying to have a business, to try to have a, a, a college, to try to have a radio station that has diversity because it makes for a better business. And in that case, even if the court just said, look, this is society working these things out. We're going to let them do it, um, especially since the statistics I read, the parties that said they were harmed were doing quite well. And um, and so that and as far as the standing thing is, look, it is not uncommon for a case to make it all the way to Supreme Court and it still be a question that's outstanding about who has standing. No pun intended. And in this case, it was never answered satisfactorily and they just blew right by it. And um, again, they, they had outcomes that they wanted to get. We'll get a few more calls on this when we come back. It's Anthony Weiner in for Frank Morano on the other side of midnight. This has been a great experience for me. I really do appreciate the great calls that have come in. We'll have a few more and we'll have a little bit more of maybe Ask Anthony after the top of the hour for the last hour of our show. 800-848-9222. And we'll see you on the other side of midnight. The other side of midnight. Side at Midnight with Frank Morano. Take a seat. Right over there, sat on the stairs, stay or leave. The cabinets are bare and I'm unaware of just how we got into this mess. Got so aggressive. I know we meant all good intentions. So pull me closer. Why don't you pull me close? Why don't you come on? I'm losing my mind just a little So why don't you just meet me in the middle In the middle Baby Why don't you just meet me in the middle I'm losing and Welcome back to the other side of Midnight The Middle, get it? By Zed Anthony Weiner in for Frank Morano we're here for a little more than an hour. We've been talking about the Supreme Court decisions. There are others, but those are the two that are getting a lot of the attention. Um, and let's take some calls about them. So uh, first, let's go to David in the Bronx. Go ahead, David. Welcome aboard. Yes, good morning, Anthony. I would like to bring up a third Supreme Court case that I think was even more egregious than the two that you mentioned. And that's the Colorado case with the website designer, because that case was basically fraudulent from the beginning. The woman never set up websites for weddings. She never had a gay customer. The gay customer she says she had apparently isn't even gay. And 
what the Supreme Court did, and I know people will call in and say, oh, it was the First Amendment case. It really isn't. Because what this is saying, in my opinion, is that a person with a so-called sincerely held beliefs can discriminate against anybody for any reason. If I don't like interracial couples because of my religious beliefs, I don't have to provide a service for them if they ask for a website or they want a floor services or anything like that. That is very dangerous. And I think it's not getting enough attention. What do you think? Yeah, so it's an excellent call. So it was a... A decision in a case, many people remember the the baker case, the, the where someone was asked to bake a cake and they didn't like what they were being asked to bake. And it, it, it the decision didn't really resolve very much on the fundamental issue about whether someone's religious freedom is infringed upon if they're asked to asked to um to basically ex- do, do a form of expression that doesn't match their religious beliefs. And there is jurisprudence out there about the idea that you can't force someone to say something that they don't believe in. It was an interesting, complicated case, but didn't it didn't get resolved there. It was thrown out on technicality. The case that was decided by the courts was a very similar case just now with the new supermajority of Republic of conservatives on the court. And they made it a speech case. They basically said that although though this person was creating a website, I don't know how anyone would say, oh, the designer of the website agrees with with gay marriage because they made this website. They said that it's that that this website um, designer could withhold services because they just didn't believe in gay marriage. And what the caller points out is correct that if you take that conclude if you take that decision to the logical conclusion, then anything that someone doesn't believe in. And uh, like, for example, I don't believe in interracial marriage. Therefore, I am not going to give services to uh, to to an interracial couple. Um, you know, or I do the example that I heard someone suggest. It might have even been from the court. Was what if someone did 1950s kind of Norman Rockwell art? And in 1950s Norman Rockwell art, they didn't. Um, they didn't never had interracial couple. And you went to that artist and say, draw my family, uh, paint my family. Under this decision, you would be able to say no. And that's not the kind of country that we don't want to be. I mean, that's, and they made it a speech case, but it was so squishy. Look, I get the tension, right? And as a religious case, I actually have an easier time sinking my teeth into it. You know, making someone do something that's in violation there. That's how, but a speech, how is your, if you're opening up a website design company, you're going to now say that I'm not going to design something because someone might think I believe in gay marriage because my company designed the website. As to the other issue, it is true that the whole case was based on this website design company saying they did not want to do this business for this gay couple. And it turned out the gay couple didn't exist. <laughs> Literally. It turned out it was the guy who was named in the lawsuit um, said, I, I, I'm not gay and I never asked them for to, to design anything for me. They admitted it. Now, the, 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 it doesn't really mean all that much because it's, it's funny and it's weird, but it doesn't mean all that much because the website design company went, there's a element, a concept in the law that if they thought they were going to be punished for doing something, they can go to the courts before they've been punished in order to say that, that my rights are being chilled just by the fact that I feel like I can't do this thing. So, but that was pretty funny that they, they, they named a, um, that a basic fact in the case was completely made up. 
Uh, next, let's go to Mike in New Jersey. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah, let me see if I got this straight. Uh, these kids in the summertime, they don't have money to pay for college. But in the summertime, the kids on the East Coast do have enough money to drive down to Florida and stay in a hotel and they pay for the hotel, and they pay for food, and they pay to get drunk, and the kids on the West Coast go down to California, and they stay in a hotel, and they have enough money to pay for the food and the liquor. They have the money to do that, but they don't have the money to pay for their college education. Now, in the summertime, I had two children that I wanted to be tutored during the summertime, so I put up notices in Pace College, City College, a number of colleges, college students tutor high school kids, okay? And I was willing to pay $15 an hour. Do you know how many responses I got? Two. These kids don't want to get off their rear end and work. They want somebody else to support them and pay for their college loan. Well, what about Bill the kids? Bought, what about the kids? Here, Mike, let me ask you this. What about the kids who don't go? To Florida, who don't go down, who and who do work all summer and still have thirty eight thousand dollars left in debt because it's so much more expensive than when you and I went to college. Okay, as I said, I put up notices and I got practically no responses. Bill Maher, who is no conservative, even came out against paying off college loans because he says, how dare these kids do that? They want poor people to pay for their college education, and then when they graduate and take higher-paying jobs, right, that, that's okay. No, 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 hold on a second. But, Mike, what about people who don't do that? What about people who work and they still have forty or $50,000 worth of debt because that's how much expensive, expensive it is? Pay off your debt. When my children finally went to college, I paid for it. And what I didn't pay for, they paid. Don't tell somebody else to cover your expenses. Stop and saying someone else. No one's saying someone else. It's the, we, we have government programs to fund education. We stopped funding them. And we said, go get a loan instead. And now we're, 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 we're doing the same funding, but we're doing it in the back end instead. We never should. Mike, you, I don't know how old you are, Mike. I'm 58 years old, going to be 59 in September. We, in the times since then, the cost of university education has gone through the roof because of what we did, you and me, Mike. We decided we didn't want to fund these programs anymore. And we saddled these kids with $50,000, $60,000 worth of debt. Now you're telling me they go to Fort Lauderdale and that's the problem? Why, why can't we do some, why can't we have a government program for middle class kids every once in a while? Why does it have to only be for rich people or for farmers or for PPP loans that, 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 that members of Congress get that they wave in a heartbeat? Suddenly we're so committed to people paying their bills, but when you're a member of Congress, you can wave a PPP loan without breaking a sweat. No way, pal. We're going to do our, we're going to take care of these guys. They're middle class families. They're under crushing debt because of what we did. And all I'm saying is, you know, let's make it up to them. But Mike, Mike had his way. The Supreme Court ruled in, in his favor. The other side of midnight's Anthony Weiner in for Frank Morano. That's it. That's the only angry outburst of the night. Next hour, nothing but cool. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Well, 
think this music works a little better with Murano than it does from a Jewish kid from Brooklyn. It's Anthony Weiner, the other side of midnight, in for Frank Murano. Keep that sound. That's a good song. I haven't run for Jesus. 800-848-9222. I promise we do some Ask Anthony Anything. But I got a couple of little items here to get us started. So the price of the stamp is going up on Sunday. For the second time this year, it's going to go from 63 to 66 cents. One of the great enduring miracles of the United States of America here on 4th of July week is how it is possible that I can take a letter, fold it into an envelope, drop it on my street corner mailbox, and it can get to Montana in a couple of days for 66 cents. How's that possible? What a bargain. I know it's going up a lot, like the fifth increase or something in the last three years, but pretty uh, remarkable. And, you know, we have affiliates in Nashville and Memphis, and it got me thinking this question. Sure, sure, Kenneth behind the glass will know this answer. Tennessee is one of two states that is bordered by eight other states. Can any of our callers for the rest of this show tell us what the other state is? Tennessee is bordered by eight other states. What is the one other state that can say that? Let's go back to the calls. Got a little of Ask Anthony Anything situation going on. First, let's go to Loretta in Brooklyn. Hey, Loretta. Uh, I know one thing about, uh, oh, Tennessee, you said. Right. So there's one other. Oh, I know. I was thinking of Mrs. Um, well, Elvis lived in Memphis. But anyway, I caught you um, with Dominic the other morning. And I got such a kick out of the two of you. Oh, yeah. You were going at it, but you weren't vicious about it. You were respectful, and you guys got heated. It was, you know, good radio. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad. I, I, I love Dominic. Dominic really kept me afloat. He's been doing this much longer than I. He and I got to know each other, Dominic Carter, for those of you around the country. He's here on 77 WABC Talk Radio. Every once in a while, he fills in for Frank, I think. And um, But he was a, a, a TV guy here in New York when I was coming up in politics. We're almost exactly the same age. But I do appreciate it, Loretta. It's kind of you to call. Uh, next, let's go to Ray in the Bronx. Go ahead, Ray. Thank you, Anthony. Uh, so one thing lighthearted, and uh, I'll be brief. Um, like what you were talking about before with Legos, I got a four-year-old and an eight-year-old. And, and there is that fine line. You don't know when to throw things out and when not to. It's, uh, it's a tough, uh, tough issue. But um, yeah. silly, but tough. But anyway, back to you um, and your issues and your, you know, you're completely honest. And I appreciate uh, a lot of us out here appreciate your honesty uh, with your fourth uh, coming. This I did lose a brother to addiction, not drugs, but um, gambling uh, like 25 years ago. And uh, so I understand that that end of it. But um, that's it. I just want to be brief and uh, get you get to the other callers. I, I appreciate uh, it, Ray. Thank you very much. And uh Good luck trying to figure out that toy situation. Ray's referring to something I mentioned earlier in the program that I have a lot of complete Lego sets that Jordan has that he hasn't touched in forever. And it has the instructions and has everything else, but doesn't have the boxes. And so when I go online, having the original box 
is an important thing for collectors. I don't have that. So, um, but I've now gotten a couple of texts from people that work at schools. Um, one, one guy wrote me, he works at a special ed school. And so I think we will find, we'll find good, um, good, good use for it. Next, let's go to Mike in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Hey, Mike. Hey, Anthony. How you doing? Thank God I'm doing well. I tuned you in the other day, like that lady said, with Dominic. Okay. Uh, my son went to Cortland. He was a wide receiver. Oh, Remember? yeah. Well, you, you, you checked in. Appreciate you calling again. That's okay, Anthony. I got to give a shout-out to Kenny of Cortland Grad and Dominic. Uh, always listening to Rita and Dominic. And I'll tell you what, uh, Anthony. Uh, I was on deck to go uh, on the phone when that do-do-do, that's an Italian expression, <laughs> that do-do-do lit you up. He was throwing you, you know, chin music, verbal <laughs> fastballs. And shame on you, dude. Because everyone's got bumps in the life. I do. Curtis, we're the same age. I mean, he's, he's a trip. He does. You did. And, you know, I, I said to Dominic uh, months ago with some do-to-do callers, stupid things come out of their mouth. It's simple-minded words out of the mouths of simple-minded people. Well, you know it's, what I mean? it's certainly um, nice of you to say. Call us again. Cortland, by the way, we in Plattsburgh, we played, you know, they were in the SUNY Act, the SUNY Athletic Conference, so we played them. In just about um, every sport. And Mike, thank you so much for checking in again. Hey, look, here's the look what I think. I think that um, people get knocked down. Sometimes they get knocked down more than once. And if you deal with with addiction, sometimes it takes even more than that. And I had a particularly low bottom. I lost my my first career. I lost my marriage. I wound up in prison. But um, no, no good comes of it if I can't talk about it honestly, that if I can't Say, look, this is what I went through, and and addiction does that to people. It knocks them down again and again. And all I can say is I have got it a lot, lot better than a lot of people. Many, many blessings that there are people who still come up to me in the street and say, I'm sorry, what happened to you? Nothing happened to me that a lot of people don't go through much, much worse things. And I have an opportunity now to be of some small service, to take the experience I had in politics and other places and and try to – engage in a conversation here and if one or two people hears this and says huh let me go check out whatever that 12-step program he talked about or you know if he can make it back maybe my son can or something like that um then that's that's you know the 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 12th step is to try to be of service to other people and that's what i'm trying to do but it's it's very kind when it's recognized but even when people take runs at me look I was in politics, man. You know, I, I grew up in the schoolyard with the last name Wiener. You, you know, <laughs> you know, I've got a, I've got a pretty, pretty thick skin. And, and I know that people get passionate about this stuff. And there are also a lot of people that I really let down. And I, I recognize that and I acknowledge it. And people are upset because of, you know, John Katsimatidis, who, who picked up 77 WABC out of the ashes. He says only half kidding that it's my fault that Bill de Blasio got elected in this city. He's, he's only, he's not entirely wrong. So I, I do, I do owe a, a lot of people and I appreciate that. Next, let's go to John in the Bronx. Go ahead, John. Is John or Tyrone? Well, uh, if you're in the Bronx and you're on my phone, call yourself whatever you want. Are you Tyrone? Yeah, I'm Tyrone. Uh, go ahead, pal. I think, you said you, I think you said you're 58. I'm heading on the other side of that. 85. I'm 83 years old. God bless so you. Here's what I want. I want to say I'm all over the place. I'm Buddhist, so the gods, all the gods must bless me. Anyway, I'm all over the place, but give me a chance. Take your one time. of the things I want, one of the things I want to say is that I have heard from you tonight 
one of the most brilliant, brilliant exhibitions of mental thinking and clarity. I don't care what your past is, everyone's given a new chance. But your wisdom, your thinking is absolutely brilliant. I had a professor in college once, uh, not in college, but in another school, but he told me that I shined a bright light into the corners of an issue. And I didn't know what that really meant until later in life. But that's what you do. You don't change anything. You just shine a bright, bright light into the corner that most people miss. They don't mean to miss it. They just don't see it clearly enough. Now, having said that, let me say this. They say that this wasn't systematic racism, but it was, Anthony, it was, it was. In other words, there wasn't one white person from Europe that was brought here involuntarily and put into slavery. It was only blacks. So it was racism from the beginning. Having said that, let me say this. In 1619, a ship with the name of Jesus brought the black slaves up the St. James River. Later on, when 1776 came around and they decided to fight the British and get free, they didn't realize blacks helped in that war. Most people think blacks was only in World War II. We were in the Civil War fighting both sides, and we were in the American Revolutionary War. But there's no recognition. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, Tyrone, I, I, I appreciate the, the warm compliment and that, that important historical reference there. You know, let's remember something. We in this country, as a way to make amends, passed the 14th Amendment. And part of the 14th Amendment was the foundation on which affirmative action is built. The court in their recent decision basically said, well, there's no longer any racism, so we don't need the 14th Amendment to cover things like affirmative action anymore. That, that to me is just wrong. If you, now there are people that might say that, that there's no racism in the country anymore and therefore we don't need these programs anymore. I, 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 I disagree, but I appreciate that, um, that, that historical reference. Let's go to Richard in Midland, Texas. Hey, Richard, thanks for calling. Hi, the air quality is better here than in New York and <laughs> we're all oil and gas, just so you know. And I had some hot dogs at Wiener Schnitzel. I don't think it's part of uh, the uh, family name or anything. No, Wiener Schnitzel is – no, but it is. It is because they're both from Vienna. I spell it E-I-N-E-R, but you're exactly right. It's from Wiener is, is, the, same, is the same base. Okay. Oh, so I could only eat uh, three or four hot dogs. I never got to the 62. <laughs> that's, then, more uh, than it, that's more than enough, Richard, more than yeah. enough. But, you know, it says ask uh, you, and I want you to be honest, and, and I can understand. By the way, I like you on radio, and you should stick to radio. You should forget about any more politics. Okay, good advice. A very good job, and I want to give you that comment. But I really want to get to the heart of what's going on, and I'm not going to tell you the Republican Party is uh, perfect, but the Democratic Party, which uh, I voted Democrat, my parents were Democrats, and uh, it's changed dramatically, and it's not for the better. You have this anti-Semitic, hate America wing in your party, more than anything that's going on in the Republican Party, and it's accepted, and you're led by some of the most despicable people, whether it's the squad, 
Whether it's now, who does squad? Who's... The squad doesn't lead anybody, Richard. Come on. No, not leading, but they're accepted in your party, and you know it's true. Yeah, but you know we have, we have. Let me say something, this Richard. And I agree with you one hundred percent. We have a problem in the American left with anti-Semitism. Fact. Period. Now, we both parties, yours and mine, have our wackadoodles. You got your Marjorie Trailer Park whatever her name is, we have our squad. We've got wackadoos, but you're right. The anti-Semitism in the left of my party and the where that comes from, in my view, and this is something I worked on when I was in Congress, I was the, you know, uh, the where it comes from is the story of David and Goliath has turned on its head. These people believe they, they, they believe that Israel is the great oppressor and they, they cross over the line from saying, I don't like Israel's policies to something that is with the BDS movement that is anti-Semitism. I agree with you 100%, Richard. To admit, your party is turning to socialism, Marxism, and they're not Democrats anymore. They're becoming Democrats. That's now, hold, hold on. Is the most Stop without Sharpton. Richard, hold on a second. We had a primary in 2016 where we had the left, a sprint to the left of all the candidates. We chose the moderate. We to stop with Al Sharpton doesn't run the Democrat. You might not like him. I don't like some of the bozos I see on Fox. But but you're making you first. You say the squad leads our party. Then you say Al Sharpton. These are boogeymen. They don't run anything. Each he's the responsible for eight people being dead in Harlem. They were all minorities. And he's responsible for Yankee Rosenblum. He's responsible for when a police is doing his job of riots, destruction of property. And yet he is part of the Democrat Party. And you know it's true. All right. For, let's be honest. No, I, he, he is. He, first of all, he's, a, he's a, a commentator on MSNBC. And he represents a certain part of whatever. Yeah, we have a pretty we have a tent that includes some folks that I don't agree with. So do the Republicans. But don't say they're not leading anything. They keep losing every single election that they have. Whenever we have a chance in our party, we're choosing the moderate Democrats. Whenever the Republicans have a choose, they're they're sprinting. They're sprinting over to places that they're denying elections and and, and fomenting insurrections. Listen to me. I'm, Richard, 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 I got my headphones on and I'm talking back to you, addressing every point. Why do you say listen to me? Al Sharpton has blood on his hands, and there's no Republican that has blood uh, on his hands. Well, really? What, 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 what about January 6th? No, no, there was no blood on January 6th? Died from there. there were not, one person was trampled on, unfortunately. And by the way, I thought Trump went way too far what he of did. Of course he did. He should have got, once he got thrown out of all the courts, it should have been the end of it. Of course. So I'm not here to... Uh, uh, Trump is lacking a lot of things if you want me to start talking about Trump. But Sharpton has been part of the Rep- Democrat Party for many years. Democratic Party. Democrat. I don't call it the Republic Party. Why do you call it the Democrat Party? Because, because he, was, uh, he, w- he had a party with, uh, with uh, Schumer there, and he had a party. No, no, with, no, no. Uh, no, I, I, I'm, asking, I'm asking a serious question, Richard. You call it the Democrat Party. It's the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. Democrat Party. You, no, it's the Democratic Party. Democratic Party, sorry. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, but, you know, it is, uh, it, here it's 3.20 uh, in the morning, and uh, over there it's 4.20 in the morning. <laughs> but anyway, listen, you're doing a great job. I appreciate it. I'm curious it. about that, and I love other points of views, and I respect your point of view. And nobody, unless you murder somebody or kill somebody or do violent crimes like Al Sharpton, anything that you did in your past, you didn't uh, do 
permanent damage to anyone and everybody, in my opinion, and I give in my life because I run a business, second chances. And hopefully uh, you'll become a regular on the WHC. Well, I appreciate it, Richard. And also, let's let's finish on the thing that we agreed upon. We do in the Democratic Party and in, in the left in our country have a problem on Israel. That's something that it's an obligation of someone like me. Um, who's not only Jewish, but who's a hawk on Israel, we have to deal with that. I mean, there, there's certainly no, uh, uh, no, no doubt about that. Next, let's go to Original Rick in New Jersey. Good morning, Mr. Weiner. Good, good morning. Good morning. All right. I have to uh, respectfully disagree with you on, on two items. Go ahead. First of all, about the, uh, the, the website designing. Are you seriously, as a Jewish man, telling me that it's okay to force a Excuse me, I'm out of breath. It's like I'm going upstairs. Take your time. A, uh, Orthodox Jewish man, the force a Jew, Orthodox Jewish man to make a pro-Nazi uh, Holocaust denying site. No, that would be uh, abominable. Okay, where did our unalienable right to say no go away? It's well, just as much of a right to say no. Well, let me ask you. Someone, oh, le- okay, no, I hear you, but let me ask you. This is a speech case, right? So. Uh-huh. What reasonable person have you ever looked at a, a website that you didn't like, that you thought, oh, my God, this is a terrible organization, and said, I'm going to go look at who was the contractor that designed the site? I mean, it's a slippery slope. The problem with the decision is a slippery slope. What if that same Orthodox Jewish guy didn't like black people? Yeah, well, but we're talking about being forced to do so. What do you mean if he didn't like black people? Well, then he wouldn't. Well, can can well, he can, can he go out in the public square, have a business, yeah. and have a sign outside? I don't I, I don't I don't do work for black people because I don't like them. No, you just say, uh, "Would you do this site for me?" No, I I, I don't do that. Well, that's the point. That's Under this decision, he can say no because he doesn't like he like, he's a photographer. Let's say he says, "Oh, I don't want to take pictures of interracial couples. I don't believe in them." Okay, but. Where is his right to say no? Go away. When you're in the public square offering a public accommodation, you can't discriminate. Well, it's not a public, but it's not a public. It's a private. It's a commercial. That's no, it's it's public. no, it's a public accommodation. It means you're of a business. You can't put a sign outside your business saying I don't I won't do business with black people because I don't like them. That's not the country we live in. You're that's that you 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 can't that that is that's prohibited under the law. Until now. Which is now you can have your description is exactly right. That Orthodox Jewish guy can say, I don't believe in intermarriage, so I am not going to, let's say, photography. I'm not going to take pictures and offer my services to an intermarried couple because I don't believe in them. That's the slippery slope. Well, it's not a slippery slope. It's only a slippery slope if you think you should be able to force people to do stuff. It's, if you don't want to do something, it should be your right to no, say no. That's not, that's, not that's that. not the way the 14th Amendment works right now. That's why people had, that's why the people had segregated soup, ca- um, 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 lunch counters. That you don't have that anymore in this country because we, 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 we said that you can't, if you have a, you're offering a public accommodation, like a hotel, like a web service, like a coffee shop, you cannot say simply because it's my speech, I don't like black people, therefore I'm not going to serve these people. That's yeah, the slippery is, it's slope. A complicated, it's a complicated It is. Thing. It totally is. That's why I made it all the way to the Supreme Court. It's right on both sides and wrong on both sides. And I don't, I, I don't know how. Also, uh, now, what about the, uh, I mean, well, I kind of got a brain fart right now. Um, uh, what was the other thing? We were, oh, but the loans. Yes. No one's forcing anyone to take out a loan. Correct. If you take out a loan for college, I did not go to college for the mere fact I could not get a loan. And I, I'm going to be honest with you. You can look this up. In the late 70s, 60s, no white guy was getting a loan. I'm no white guys were getting loans? Well, well, let's say non-minority. 
Okay. What are you talking? Yeah, about? Was, I, you mean I redlining, redlining against white people? That I never heard of. Well, uh, you should have been in my area. Okay, could not get one. In fact, and this is not a lie. Seriously, it had a question on there. It said, "Are you black?" That's what it said. Are you black? Yes. Yeah, we no. had redlining. Oh, you are, are you African American, Rick? You're saying you were redlined. Yeah, that definitely happened. No, 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 no. I'm not. I'm not. Oh. But it had that on there, and I checked it. Yes, and I got in big trouble. Got it. Well, listen, here's here's what I would say. First of all, like we, you know, you didn't take out a loan. Do, do, do you do you get agriculture subsidies? I got nothing. I do you got nothing do, do you win? Are you a billionaire? Did you get the billionaire tax cut? I got nothing. From did anybody. you get the did you get the military contract? <laughs> did you get the PPP loan? All I'm saying is all the time we have our, our, our government and we got to get to a break all the time in our government is full of programs that go to discrete people. In this case, it goes to people who went to college, who are middle class, and, 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 you know, I think doing something for them sure beats doing it for those other groups. This is Anthony Weiner. This is the other side of midnight. We're coming back from the break. A few more calls, and I'll give you the answer to that question. What is the state besides Tennessee that's bordered by eight other states? The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Midnight Anthony Weiner sitting in for Frank Morano. I can't tell you what an honor this is for me. When you do radio, filling in for someone for an hour here or there, going in as someone's partner like I do with with Curtis Lee here in New York, that's one thing. Doing an overnight when you're filling in for someone who has an erudite show, who has a show that brings something different and attracts an audience that expects something different. Um, is a real big test. And the fact that they're giving me this opportunity that, that Frank encouraged the, the, the bosses here to give me this opportunity. Um, it's a big deal for me. And, uh, and, and, you know, the only, it's the whole, the whole paradox of like, well, you need experience in order to, you need opportunities in order to get experience in order to get opportunities in order to get experience. Um, being able to do, learn this, try it out. Um, this is probably the toughest test that you have in radio. And thankfully, Kenneth and Elias have helped me get through it. And the callers have been excellent, have been very patient with me. 
Um, we had an opportunity to hear from a from a great call from a, a great guest, which was nice. Um, and we've had a good chock a block of issues. And for me, it's uh, you know this is the way I'm gonna I'm gonna get better at it. And I know I have a lot to learn. Um, I have to. I have to learn kind of the rhythm of it a little better. I have to get the flow of the calls a little better. Sometimes I don't let each call breathe as much as I probably should. Again, my experience, I'm on on a, a show called The Middle at 77 WABC in New York. It's available as a podcast, and it's one hour on a Sunday, and it's pretty tight. And I do I try to take one issue each week, and then we do calls around it. Um, but it is, as I said earlier, it's like, Classical music, everything is a note on the piece of paper, and we're boom, 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 you get in, you're out. When you're doing an overnight, by virtue of the fact that it's overnight, there's an expectation that it's going to be more like jazz. And also, you get fairly well trained in partisan radio to do the partisan hit for your team. And, I, and I'm, you know, I, I don't think anyone would say I've taken any conservative positions per se, but I do enjoy the back and forth. I do enjoy hearing both sides. And that's the kind of show I think that, that Frank has and that his callers and his, um, his audience expects. And so I really appreciate the opportunity to do it. I don't know if I'll, if I'll do it again. He's, he's pretty reliable, Frank. And then there's when Sliwa fills in, you don't want to get between Curtis Sliwa and a microphone. And I'm sure somewhere in this, in me winding up here, it was Curtis also saying, I'll, I'll step back and let uh, Wiener give it a try. Um, he's been a great mentor to me as well. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. And feel free to call in 800-848-9222. We'll take calls right to the top. And the answer to the question, you know, we have affiliates in Nashville and Memphis. Tennessee is bordered by eight other states. And the key to solving this is to think about oddly shaped states know how Tennessee is long and narrow and goes east to west and therefore touches a lot of states in the southeast. So does Missouri. Missouri is the other state that borders eight other states. Now, if I was called upon to list those eight other states, I might not be able to do it. But I only know that because in 1988, I worked in a – 1988? Was it 84? I worked in a Senate race for a woman named Harriet Woods. I think she passed away running against a guy named Kit Bond. And um, and I was working at the time for my predecessor in Congress, Chuck Schumer. And they had a little going away party for me. I was going to go work on this campaign. And um, they got me a St. Louis Cardinals hat so I would fit in in Missouri. And this was the time in the 80s when the Mets and the Cardinals were, were deathly rivals. Um for a while, as it was a, for a while, it was the Cubs, and it was Atlanta for a while. But this was the period of time where St. Louis was the rival, and I refused. Fortunately for me, the Kansas City Royals um, also wore a hat that I could wear, even though I was headquartered in St. Louis. I could wear my Kansas City Royals hat. Uh, Harriet Woods lost that race to a guy named Kit Bond, who was the governor at the time. She was Lieutenant. Was she a lieutenant governor at the time? No. She was the former lieutenant governor. She had run four years earlier against Tom Eagleton. At, no, that's not right. I'm screwing up the story. She ran against she ran against Kit Bond. Um and it's the guy that replaced Eagleton in the Senate. Anyway, so I spent some time in Missouri. That is bordered by eight other states. 
Let's go to a few more calls, and uh, we'll start with Dave in New York City. Hey, Dave, thanks for calling. Good evening. Good morning, rather. Uh, I'm very pleased to see that overnight radio on your station is taking a very positive direction. Well, thanks, Dave, Uh, and that's partially because of you, so I appreciate it. Well, no criticism against Mr. Morano, but your show has a completely different and very intriguing flavor. Now, to get on to the point. Very simply, you have this student loan issue. Personally, I don't like the idea of people taking loans, massive loans, and saying, well, you know, look, I had lousy grades in college. I didn't do well. I had a a C average, and a lot of employers kind of looked at me cross-eyed and said, well, no, I got my degree in, in medicine or engineering or whatever the heck it is, liberal arts. And they said, well, you know, we could get a better quality of work. Okay, fine. But that aside, the main concern that I have, it's very simple. Look, you go to buy a house. Well, you you get one person that goes to buy a house, small house. You get a person that goes to college. They're both in need of a loan. In one case, it's called a mortgage. In one case, it's called a loan. Now, the, the qualifications for a mortgage are extremely harsh. They're tight. Okay, you've got to have some means. You've got to have some reliability and such and such. Whereas generally, from what I've seen, especially with my uh, my my children, one of my children, is that they don't really drag you down the road. They don't draw, hang you out to dry to get the student loan. Okay, right. so my point is this: example, my son went. To college, he took a science curriculum. He he had a good average, fairly good average of B average. He worked very hard. He came out. He was successfully employed and is paying back his loans. What I can't, what I don't understand, is that why would you use this as an enticement? The Democrats use this as an enticement to say, "Listen, don't worry, take away your money, do what you want with it." And go go broke, and then you won't have to pay your loan, so you'll be okay. But giving a debt like that, listen, you, you don't pay your you don't pay your mortgage. Well, in the what house. is but Dave? What is your what is your response to the, the point I made a couple of times tonight that we forgive loans all the time to other other parts of the economy? Why not do it for a middle class family who's trying to get ahead by going to college, especially since we cut. We, you and me, Dave, with our tax dollars, we cut spending on education and we made these loans necessary for people if they wanted to go to college. We we waived the PPP loan. I agree. I agree. That was millions of dollars. I agree with certain people in the upper classes, the political classes, the Democrats, the Republicans. They get they get whatever they want. No, that's not that's not the point I'm making. I'm making is sometimes it's good policy. We wanted to help the economy come back, so we basically the PPP loan. I was running a factory at the time in the in the Brooklyn Navy Yard that manufactured countertops. The PPP loan allowed us to keep workers working, and we made it rather than a loan, we made it a grant because it was good for the economy. This is good for the economy. I'm not saying don't relieve debt. I'm saying why are we picking and choosing and saying well this is good for the economy, but this isn't. I mean, I, I You're think right. it's, I think, and by the way, we have loans for everything. You can, do you know the, the one people that don't pay anything for their loans? The banks, they pay like half a percent and then loan it to us for six percent. And then when we, we think they're, they're brilliant when they make a profit. If you're rich, you can borrow, it's called margin. You can buy stocks with a loan. 
But if you're a middle class family and wants to get a college education, you come out with sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars worth of student of student debt. One of the ways we can help our economy is help these kids out so they can go on. And, and then, by the way, you wonder why they don't become teachers. They don't want to become cops or firefighters because they've got all this debt. They've got to figure out some way to make more money. So that is, I mean, that's the, the, the challenge here is that is it good for us? Don't look at this. Is it good for the family to get the loan? I get it. You're like, I'm not one of them. Why is it good for me? It's good for all of us in the economy that these kids are not these kids. These young people are not walking around. With all of this debt that we didn't have to, I didn't have this much debt. I went to a state school. I took out, I think, one loan. It was at a, a reasonable amount. And the reason why the standards aren't very high for those loans is they're guaranteed by the government. The government owns this paper. And we're, you know, I don't know. It just, it just seems like a relatively reasonable thing to do. Pete on Staten Island, do you agree? I agree with you 100%, and it would benefit me. I, I really don't feel it's fair. It's a loan. To, uh, they give it completely. They could reduce it like a percentage, like 20%, reduce it or 30%. Well, I think you only get to, it's limited to $10,000, I think, is how the right, program's set right. up. Right, right. It would benefit me because I put my daughter to college. She just after she uh, this is graduate school. She said that's the only loan she got to take because I paid the whole thing in full. But uh, even on that, she's got about forty thousand, and they would benefit at ten thousand. And I, you know, I, it would be good, but uh, I don't feel that uh, to forgive completely because it is a loan. When you take out a loan, you make a commitment. To pay I know, but back but but you had no choice, right? If you if you I were gonna, had no choice, right, no. you had no choice, right? And we all agree. Like one of the ways we live out the American dream in this country is we say you go get an education. Not everyone does it. Other people do different things. You go get an education. It's one of the ways that you that one generation does better than the next, which is what we all want. No matter what party we are, we all aspire to leave. The next generation a little bit better. And one of the ways to do that, one of the rungs on the ladder is education. So we started in the in the eighty in the eighties and nineties and the and the aughts, we started slashing the amount of money we were putting into colleges, to college education, the budget, the tax dollars we were putting in. We said, instead, go get a loan to do it. And that was not fair. So what we're saying is we didn't put it in the front end, we're gonna help you out at the back end. And we're going to create this program that's going to help middle class people. And the one thing that's weird to me is that this is just as many Republican families are benefiting from this as Democratic families. What had this become a partisan thing? Why do, why do Republicans feel they want to stand up? They, they, I never hear them calling in and saying, let's not give billionaires a tax break because they don't, you know, who really don't need it. But here it is a program for them and their kids. And they're like, oh, it's not fair. I mean, I agree with you. I agree 100%. And uh, one example today, if you are willing to hustle, I put ads out in in grocery stores. If you need help, I could help you, drive you to the store, things like that. And one of the ads I put out, I got a call that we're going away somewhere to family and we're afraid of leaving our house with the fireworks because the fireworks in Staten Island, uh, it's like you think you're in Beirut. You know, it's beautiful, but I leave it to the professionals. It's very dangerous. I mean, I was with the fire department, and uh, I've seen a lot of things, you know. So that in the end, these people will pay $100 an hour for 12 hours to watch the house with a saltwater pool that you could enjoy yourself. I had wow. four or five of my relatives come over, 
and we barbecued and we had a ball and I made myself $1,200. I spent 400 in food and we had a ball. You know, but things like that, there are some beautiful ways of making money. Yeah, I'm a, and, and I want to say, and I and I agree, and Pete, thank you, and I, I won't take it personally that I wasn't invited. But look, the the thing is, and I read the statistics, when I was going to college and I graduated in 1985, if you work part-time on campus or somewhere else, you pretty much could earn enough to pay your way through college. Now... You have to work full time, and you're still thirty or forty, fifty thousand dollars in debt. That's the problem. Now, here's a here's a thing that no one has 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 raised, and uh, so I'm going to raise it, and it's a weakness in my argument. But I'm not sure how much, what we can do about it. Inflation in higher education is bonkers, and one of the reasons why uh, people are leaving with so much debt is you can make an argument because these loans are readily available. It's the, the, the colleges are raising their costs commensurately and it's a, a inflationary cycle. I think that is a reasonable concern. I see colleges competing by having fancy food services and fancy buildings and a beautiful this and a beautiful that. Um, I see colleges with super high endowments that are still charging un- incredible amounts um, so I, I get it that that's a problem. Now, how does government stop that? I mean, that's harder to do. That's a hard, that's a tougher problem. Um, I will admit, cause then you're getting into price controls, which n- neither left nor right supports. Um, but they, this, they, there's, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of blame to go around for how expensive it is to go to Congress, to go to Congress, to go to college. Um, but, uh, chief among them is that these loans are very expensive. Let's go to our last break of the day. When we come back, we'll finish up some calls. We have some final thoughts. It's Anthony Weiner in for Frank Morano on the other side of midnight. The other side of midnight. Side at midnight with Frank Morano. The other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Having the opportunity to fill in, that was Harry Styles. Okay, they can't all be winners. Have a weak spot for that song. Um, if you want to follow some of the stuff I do, at Rep Wiener, R-E-P-W-E-I-N-E-R on Twitter. If Twitter's still there by the end of the week, I mean, who knows? That place is falling apart. 
wienerwabc at gmail.com. You, if I didn't get to your call, you can email me there. I'll try to get back to you. And also, I have two podcasts. One is a repurposing of my Saturday show called The Middle. It's from 2 to 3 on wbcradio.com. And it's also available as a podcast. And then I have something called The Middle Unplugged that comes out every Wednesday, which is we it's kind of like a radio show. We do one issue. It's a little bit more punditry. Um, we have a little fun, and Adam allowed to curse on that one. So that comes out. It's a separate feed. Uh, but it's also called the Middle Unplugged, and that's wherever you get get podcasts. We're getting close to the to the end here. This is, as I've said a few times, a, a great opportunity for me. I've uh, really enjoyed it. The calls have really made it um, special. Some excellent some excellent calls. I want to thank Kenneth and Elias. Kenneth for running the board. Elias for for managing all of your calls, um, and all the folks who I'm getting a chance to talk to that I don't get. And on my show, it's a it's a real pleasure. Um, I'm like you. I'm a listener to Frank Shaw. Sometimes I don't listen to it live. I listen to it on podcast because because um, I have I have I need my sleep at this age. Um, but I I really do in, enjoy listening to the show as much as I have enjoyed uh, um, hosting it. So let's do a couple of final calls, and let's start with Trisha in Connecticut. Go ahead, Trish. Uh, Mr. Weiner, you uh, just alluded to college being so expensive because it's higher inflation, but it's also a racket that the administrators and tenured professors um, are well compensated and they, the colleges know that students can get loans so they can keep charging more and more. My second point is that um, students... Um, shouldn't be subsidized by the government. We don't have the money. They're printing money as it is. The, the, the trillions in debt is destroying the country. And they're making, the Democrat Party is making, uh, incentivizing dependency upon government. And government should not be involved in all of these issues that are not constitutional and are just um, destroying our country with with humongous debt. I agree with Mark Levin in his book that's coming out in September, The Democrat Party Hates America, and is um, the the entity through which Marxism has installed its philosophy and its new revolution. I, I, I don't hate America. No, I'm not saying that people who vote the Democrat uh, hate America, but the party, that's what they've been just destroying America. But the party is made up of human beings. <laughs> yeah, but the people controlling it is one of your fellow Democrat voters. Democrat, to Democrat, Democrat. Who, who do you think controls this party? I'm just curious because I want to meet that person. They're doing a lousy job. Who, who do you think controls the party? Well, the people running, the, the leaders that are so... Um, you know, you mean, like you mean the people, Adam Schiff is a liar, right? He, well, he, Adam Adam Schiff is an elected member of the United States uh, Congress, so you, so he that, that's in the Constitution. He's he's he 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 has just his right to avoid. Who, who's who, who's your member of Congress in Connecticut? Oh, they're all Democrats now, and they, and I don't I don't respect any of them really. Um, so here, here's well, what here's what I mean. I think that. And I appreciate your call, Trish. And and I I think as I said I said before the break I think there's something to the idea that inflation in 
education is higher than it should be. Inflation in healthcare is higher than it should be. Inflation in a lot of places is higher. That, that greed is the source of a lot of the problems that we have. And that part of what government's job should be is to figure out ways to make sure that citizens are put before these entities that are greedy. But one of the things I want to caution us, and this might be a good note to kind of, to kind of end on. You know, when we talk about the Democratic Party hates us or the Democratic, or the leaders of the Democratic Party are trying to do A, B, or C. Look, these are American citizens who voted for their representatives to express their values and what they wanted policy to be. Because they disagree with you doesn't make them venal. It doesn't make them evil. It doesn't make them, you know, Mark Levin says things like that because he's trying to animate anger. Because anger gets people to do actions. One of the actions he wants you to do is to buy his book, and it's good business for him to make you angry. It's good business for MSNBC to make the left angry. It's good business to Fox News, and and even sometimes on these airwaves. It's good business. But I don't think it's good for our country. And we have to get past this idea that there's this vague, amorphous them out there that is out to be, you know, that is evil. I mean, there there are people out there that want to make you angry about student loans because they're getting agriculture subsidies for their big country, their big companies, or they're getting giant tax breaks so they can buy more stocks and bonds. You know, there when when people are trying to animate you by anger and by fear, you've got to ask the question: What are who who benefits from that? When a when a bunch of working class people are fighting with one another and calling each other evil. Someone's benefiting from that. And that in, in Adam Schiff, Anthony Weiner, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, Marjorie Taylor, uh, uh, um, um, I don't remember her last name, Marjorie Taylor, Marjorie Taylor Green, thank you, Ken. Marjorie Taylor Green, uh, Lauren Boebert, um, Donald Trump. It, you know, we're at different sides of issues. Politically, but these are elected people that got elected by their representatives. Now, we are at a moment in our country where we are particularly divided, that we are a 45-45-10 country, 45 Democrat no matter who it is, 45 Republican doesn't matter what kind of a scoundrel they are, and 10 that show up at presidential election times and who basically are pretty much checked out. And even those 10 probably have their biases built in. That's true. But the other side isn't evil. The other side isn't going to ruin your country. People who tell you that are people who are trying to sell books with titles like they hate us. No one hates you. We have different ideas. We have different ideas. We're patriots. Part of being patriotic is, you know, doing what you think is right. We all want the same things. We want to leave a country, a neighborhood, a city a little bit better than the one we found. Some people think you do that by taxing the rich and by changing student loan payback schedules. Some people think you do that by having a bigger military. Some people think that you'd do that by giving tax cuts to 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 Soros and 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 tax cuts to Musk and these people who don't don't need your money. We have disagreement about that. But the people who believe that aren't evil, disagree with them. 
and the Republicans and Democrat and it's the Republican Party, not the Republic Party, and the Democratic Party, not the Democrat Party. I don't know who you think you're insulting by leaving off by leaving off a couple of letters. It's weird. I don't know where it started. But I want to end on a high note that, you know, I think by and large, the people who tune in, who pick up a phone, who call, who listen is because they want to be involved in the civic future of their country. And Frank Morano honors that every night when he does his show. I think I've tried to honor that ethos today. All of you have participated and listened. You wouldn't listen and you wouldn't call and you wouldn't participate if you didn't care. And ultimately, we're patriots. We might approach things in different directions, but we're patriots. And I think the the more we can kind of see that commonality, the better off the country will be. There is one they out there, and it's the interest in having us at each other's throats. And it's usually people who are doing just fine, who want to either distract us from things or they want to get us fighting so we don't notice they're doing things that maybe they shouldn't do. But this is where patriotism happens, particularly on the radio because people get to talk back and they get to talk to each other. And I am really grateful for the opportunity to have done that today. I um, I feel that this is a real privilege to be at this side of the microphone. I think it's a privilege to, to fill in on, on a show like this. It's a privilege to be in this group of stations that carries Frank's show. And I hope I get the opportunity to do it again. And um, feel free to stay in touch with me at RepWiener on Twitter, WienerWABC at gmail.com. And Frank will be back tomorrow morning. Welcome him with open arms. Don't hold him to too high a standard. I know living up to the Wiener example is not going to be easy. And a happy belated 4th of July. God bless the United States of America, and God bless all of you. I'm so grateful to have had your time this, this morning. <laughs>